So were you able to stay healthy during that, that 10 year period of time that you were training and racing marathons? No, I was not. <laughs> um, I stayed healthy enough and I was stubborn enough that I was able to run through most of my injuries. Um, I mean, my uh, marathon PR, I ran on kind of a non-functional Achilles tendon and I think probably also a stress fracture in my ankle, probably, because it's within a week of finishing, I could barely walk. Um, and I had to take, take it like a month off of running. Um, but no, I was, um, I was doing no strength training. Um, I was, so I'm five foot 10 and in college, my morning wake up weight when I was racing. So everyone's like, Oh, you know, how much do you weigh? You weigh yourself in the morning when you wake up, that's your lightest, but your most consistent. So racing weight in college for me was 145 with marathoning. I got down to 141 and I did not have four pounds of anything to lose. So I became very efficient at running just under six minute pace all day. Um, it was never comfortable. I did not have the engine anymore or the musculature to make that comfortable, but I could do it. And it's all I could do. I mean, if I hit a hill, like I remember even when I was in, you know, mid two thirties marathon shape, if I hit a steep enough hill, I'd have to walk. I mean, I would get winded walking up the stairs. I had lost all muscle tone. Um, and I did get lots of little injuries. You know, I had some IT band syndrome. Uh, there was that Achilles, actually my 10 K track PR from my Boston marathon buildup in 07, I ran on an Achilles that really didn't work. Um, but I did it anyway. And then I ran the Boston marathon. On. No, Vermont city, Vermont city. My marathon PR is off of that. So I just ran through stuff, but I was not healthy. My, my shoulders, my uh, shoulder blades hurt for 10 years and I would have my wife massage them and I would scream in pain. And I went to a chiropractor and they're like, oh, you need to be, you know, doing this adjustment. And it was only, you know, five or 10 years ago when I started doing some more mountain biking and some more weight training that I realized it was weakness. It was just, <laughs> my back was so weak that running made it tired and made it hurt. And that hasn't happened since once. Hey there, podcast listener. If this is your first time here, welcome to the Eat Half Walk Double Podcast, coming to you from the Ascend Endurance Coaching Studios here in sunny Stratford, New Hampshire, US of A. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. If you follow the show, thank you and welcome back. So this show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports. As an exercise physiologist, coach, race director, and athlete, told to the stories of the important influential and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Dr. Andrew Best joins the show this week, a Cat One mountain biker and assistant professor of biology at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. His handle... Drew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. How are things? I'd say things are pretty good. I'd say they're a nine out of ten. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's that's pretty good. That's a that's a fairly high bar uh, to set. Um, so let's let's get something out of the way uh, right out of the gate, right? So a very simple, very direct. Which would you rather question? You ready? Oh yeah. Okay. All right. 
Drew, which would you rather join Fish on stage for a set as a guitarist or race a UCI mountain bike World Cup event? Oh, man, you did your research. I'm sitting here wearing a ridiculous Fish cutoff T-shirt that I bought in the parking lot at a Fish show in 2000. I almost apologized for it. <clears throat> um, wow, I see both of those terrify me because I do play guitar. And I describe my style as a very, very terrible version of the guitarist from Fish. <laughs> and I do love mountain biking, but I don't love being in last place. And so in both of these scenarios you've presented, I'd embarrass myself a bit. Um, so I would say be on stage with Fish because that would be embarrassing, but at least it would be, <clears throat> I don't know, uh, at least I get to meet the band. So we'll go with that. <laughs> Very good. Um, as as part of this conversation, we will uh, we will flesh out uh, at least one of those passions of yours um, uh, as we as we as we move through this conversation. Drew, for the listener who doesn't know Drew Best, why don't you introduce yourself? Okay, um, I'm I'm Drew Best. Andrew Best, go by Drew. Um, and I'm 41 years old, live in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts. I'm from Connecticut, not too far away. And if you're listening to this, um, you are probably in the endurance sports world, maybe even in the Northeast US, maybe not. Um, and I've been in that world for a while. Uh, obviously, Chris has too. Um, and we'll talk about how we met. But so that's, you know, kind of my, maybe that's why I'm on here, because I'm also connected to the in endurance world here. Um, I'm, I'm a runner <clears throat> now. I'm more of a mountain biker, um, very competitive, as competitive as I can be, because that's, that's what really gets me off about it. Um, and I'm a biological anthropologist. So just recently I will talk about it probably, but I taught high school for years. Um, and now I'm a college professor and, uh, do some research, um, in evolutionary physiology. So like why do our bodies work the way they do? Well, I find you infinitely fascinating on on any number of levels. You and I, <clears throat> uh, you and I, of course, have have had our our fair share of, of conversations around endurance sports. Um, but um, but 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 my background uh, in the sciences, and of course your extensive background in the sciences, uh, always always I think sets up opportunities for us to talk about a lot of different things uh, when we get it, we get an opportunity to get together. And we really haven't had an opportunity to get together uh, the last few years anyway, as uh, uh, well as COVID kind of put a, a crimp in everyone's style uh, in terms of in terms of racing and your your evolution as an as an endurance athlete. Uh, there's a connection to your uh, to your professional acumen as well. Uh, Drew, you, you mentioned uh, how, how we met. I want to talk about that uh, for a moment. So my recollection is we met in 2013. At that time, you were making a transition from road and cross-country running uh, to mountains and trails and, and, and mountain biking. You raced the Loon Mountain Race for the first time in 2013, I believe, unless I'm, I'm mistaken. That's right. Um, what was that experience like and, uh, and what impact did it have on you uh, over the next three years of your athletic life? probably remains my favorite running race 
of all time. So nice job, Chris, for anyone listening who doesn't know, this is a race, I think started by you and Paul Kirsch, right? It was, it was originally started by Paul Kirsch. Got to give Paul his, uh, his due there. Paul, um, uh, and, uh, um, Tim Van Orden, Richard Bolt, Dave Dunham had a hand in it, uh, originally created by, by Paul. Paul brought me in as a co-race director and co-owner, um, in, uh, 2000, nine 2010 something like that okay yeah it's um for anyone who doesn't know it's an awesome trail race up loon mountain in lincoln new hampshire so yeah i was um we might get into it but i was coming off of 10 years being really into the marathon um and i was never like never going to qualify for the trials i was never you know i was never that guy but I was one of those guys who was really into it. Right. <clears throat> and a lot of injuries and actually mostly for reasons, um, I just really couldn't road race anymore. I actually had an issue with my feet where my feet would burn, uh, anytime I ran like under six minute pace or, uh, even anywhere close to it. And we weren't able to figure out what it was. It might've been friction. It has to do with how my feet land. I run on the outside of my feet. Um, we don't know. No one knew what it was and it just became unbearable. And I wasn't, finishing races. So I said, you know, I do love trail running. I'd always done some of it, you know, since I was a kid, it was always a small part of my training and I've done a couple trail races and I did one or two in 2013 and I loved it. <clears throat> and then I think I saw on the internet, I'm like, Oh, there's this race up a mountain. So let's, let's try it. And it was awesome. And what I really love about one of the things I love most about racing now is that I get to drive around the Northeast and have like little day adventures, usually solo, sometimes with my wife, but usually solo. And it's just like a little slice of adventure, especially if it's in a beautiful place. And mountain running is that you get to go to mountains and you get to run up them and hang out with cool people and get great views. So I did that race <clears throat> and I was like, this is the kind of running I want to do. Um, everything about it was great. I mean, it hurt just as much as road racing, um, but the recovery was a little bit quicker because there wasn't much downhill. That was nice too. And uh, the scenery was beautiful. And, you know, I kind of wish I spend more time in Vermont and New Hampshire. Um, and so I thought, hey, these are excuses to spend time in places I really like. So Loon, yeah, Loon got me hooked and mountain running, mostly uphill mountain running was the thing I really spent a lot of my energy on from about 2013 to 2018. <clears throat> there have been a fair number of um, uh, elite or high-level uh, road athletes make the switch and jump into mountain running with some measure of success. And I wonder, I wonder your thoughts about um, that, that leap. Um, that that move from from road racing to mountain racing versus road racing to really technical trail running because I I guess in I guess in my view you know road road of course there's there's obvious differences between between road racing and, and mountain racing particularly uphill mountain racing there's obviously a difference in terms of surface and right. terrain um, but I think but I think the I think the fitness um, from the road running fitness I think translates a little bit better to mountain running then, 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 then road fitness might translate into the technical aspects of super techie trail running. Do you, you think that's true? hundred percent. Yeah. And as much as I really like running fairly technical trails, I'm not good at it. 
and uh, it's it's a skill, right? Just like um, you know, running fitness can translate somewhat into cycling fitness, mm. but that's just a fitness translation. But then if you transition to mountain biking, there's a skill element, and I think it's the same thing. If you're running fit on the roads, uh, you've got a big engine, <clears throat> you can probably learn to run well uphill, even if it's technical because it's slow. So who cares? It's just about your engine. But as soon as you're going flat or downhill on technical, um, you you need the skill. And obviously, to a certain point, you know that can be developed. But I have come to believe that you're you kind of either develop it as a kid, or or you're not going to get it. And I just never got it. Hmm. Well, of course, I I would also suspect that the that the faster you're moving over that super technical terrain, the more difficult and challenging it is in terms of you know, foot placement and, and, uh, and balance and power. And, 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 and I think you're right. I think, I think trail running it, 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 it is a lot like mountain biking and that there's a, there's a certain uh, skill element that's involved in it. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. You know, I also think the interesting and, and unique thing about the Loon Mountain Race uh, here uh, in New England is that it gives, it gives, uh, it gives local athletes, it gives New England athletes, an opportunity to measure themselves up against some of the best mountain runners in the country. Loon Mountain Race has hosted the U.S. Mountain Running Championships on on, on many occasions. Um, so it's kind of I, I think it's unique and, and sort of cool that 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 race um, is a national championship. Um, I mean, not. You know, there aren't those national championship opportunities all the time here in the Northeast in terms of endurance sports. But but the Loon Mountain Race is one of those races that you can almost count on. You know, every every other year, every third year, at least at least once in a five year span, it'll it'll host a national championship. And you've you've raced the Loon Mountain Race uh, when it has been a national championship, right? Yeah, three times, 2014, 16 and 18, um, which was great because you get to learn the course and you know what to expect. And I had nearly identical finishes in all of them. I was, I think, 20th, 19th and 20th hmm. or 19th, 20th, 20th, something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so. I guess I got dialed in. There wasn't any improvement and there wasn't any, any decrement either. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm curious. Um, what, what, what was your general takeaway uh, from those national championship experiences with respect to um, were you, were you, were you surprised by your finishes? In other words, were you pleasantly surprised uh, with your finishes? Were you a little bit disappointed in those finishes? Cause again, Drew, you know, you, top level New England athletes, um, you know, can dominate in New England based events. Right. And, and mm -hmm. so you, you know, you, it, it becomes a little bit more difficult to actually figure out where you're at, right. From a, from a, a fitness standpoint, clearly, you, you know, that you are, you're the big fish in this relatively small pond here in New England. But when you begin to bring other athletes from across the country to these, to these top level um, mountain races, for instance, um, obviously the competition level rises. So what, what were your takeaways from those national championships? Were you, were you pleasantly surprised at where you finished? Were you a little bit, were you a little bit disappointed or what, or, or were those finishes about what you expected? I would say about what I expected. And, you know, just to clarify, I don't think I've ever really felt like that big of a fish in this pond because, so I think I probably got a little better at uphill mountain running than I was at, at road running. I probably got like half a notch better um, in that aspect of my running life, right. Running career. But, um, even in that pond, there was always Eric Blake 
who uphill is still the best in New England, I believe. There's maybe a handful of guys now that can challenge him, and I couldn't touch him. Um, and guys like Josh Ference, um, Brandon Newbold. So Ference, I've only beaten once or twice. <clears throat> um, so what I was really doing, I'm not really thinking about the national level guys that are coming in because I don't really know who they are. I, I never really followed stuff that closely. I just wanted to see if I was placing around the other top New England guys. Um, and as long as I did that, I was pretty happy, right? So like me and Brandon Newbold went back and forth in a, a bunch of races during those years. And he's very consistent. He still is. He's also very versatile. So I was always happy to finish. You know, I'd like to beat him, but if I'm right behind him, then I know, all right, it's an okay day. So I was not really at all surprised by any of the performances because I knew what my training was. I knew what I could do. And I knew what the other guys around here do because they're all very consistent. <clears throat> so that's how I gauged it. And, you know, I, I think I realized in my 20s that I was never going to be great. You know, for a couple of years, I had visions of like, oh, man, I'm going to qualify for the marathon trials, you know. But I think in all the athletic things I've done, at some point hit my my ceiling pretty much at least 99% of it and i think i hit that in road running and then i hit it pretty quickly in mountain running and i realized okay there's only like 1% more here that i could get i mean in my second year of mountain running you know i was pretty much running the times and finishing in the places that i would for the next 4 years um so either my training was too stale which probably was and is <laughs> because as we'll talk about, probably I don't vary things much or that really just was my limit. And in a way I've come to accept those. So yeah, I'm happy with finishing top 20 a couple times, happy to be mixing it up with, you know, those, you know, with those guys, <clears throat> at least sometimes. Yeah. And, and, and we're going to talk, we're going to talk more about, uh, uh, about your, about your running background roads and and also on the mountains but i i want to back up uh, even a little bit uh even a little bit further back in time so the the poet william wordsworth famously included the line the child is the father of the man and in his 1802 poem my heart leaps up also known as the rainbow the sentiment of course being that our childhood influences the adult we become your mother suffered an aneurysm at the age of 40. You were 13 years old. You've said that this had a big impact on you. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I've been trying to think about how to describe this. Um, I, I don't know what the impact is. I only know that it was really important because I think about it all the time. It's ever present. <clears throat> and my mom has made, I would call it a 70% recovery. So she's able to live on her own. Um, but, you know, with some assistance, um, she can't work. I mean, she'd be retired anyway, hopefully. You know, she's in her late 60s. Um, but for a couple years, I mean, she basically almost died. Uh, so the aneurysm, they said, was four to five times larger than what they'd ever seen. Um, and so they really couldn't believe that she made it. And I think one of the doctors called it a miracle, um, which is not really something I want to hear from a doctor, <laughs> as an aside. Um, and then at, like a day or two later, she had a stroke, too. So she was not, I don't think she was in a coma, but she was basically unresponsive for some number of days. And then in the months that followed, she was <clears throat> very limited. It's almost like she 
it's almost like she went through like development again, you know, like she relearned how to speak, relearned how to think. I mean, everything came back slowly. Um, so yeah, so I was 13 and I think my response to that, thinking back on it was, um, partially denial and just do the 13 year old boy thing of get into the things you do. So I think for a year I became a little bit of a troublemaker, you know, like smoke some pot when I was, you know, 13 or 14. And, uh, you know, I was like a rollerblader, but I was terrible at it, but that was kind of like an edgy thing to do, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. That just became the new normal and it, you know, obviously affected my, my home life. Um, but I think my, my dad, and then later my mom, once she was, you know, when she was healed enough to be competent, really did a good job of not letting it, uh, ruin my life. Cause it, cause it didn't, <laughs> you know, um, it's almost more that now I'm coming to terms with it a bit more because now I'm, I'm slowly taking on a bit more of a caretaker role. I mean, not that she needs that much care, but you know, she needs, financial oversight and legal oversight and companionship and all that kind of stuff. And my dad is, they're actually separated. Um, but my dad has been doing most of that for years. And so, um, now that we're all getting older, you know, uh, me and my wife are slowly taking on more of it, or at least planning to take on more of it. So it has me thinking about it again. <clears throat> and I would probably need someone from the outside looking in to tell me exactly what it, what it did to me. Um, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a pretty anxious person. And I would describe myself as a self-involved person, which I'm kind of ashamed of. Um, but looking at the patterns in my life, I mean, I, I think I've always been self-involved. I don't want to say self-absorbed or selfish. Those might be true as well, but definitely self-involved. And, uh, you know, a psychoanalyst could probably tell me whether it's true. But I wonder if my initial reaction to this like, traumatic event when I was a kid was to, you know, look inward and get more into things I enjoy. And that's been the pattern my whole life. I mean, all the choices I've made, I don't think they've been selfish in that I don't think they've hurt other people, but they've always been, how about this? Here's something I think that my dad did really well. I, actually, both of my parents, I was raised basically to believe I can do anything I want. Um, and it took me until I was about 30 to realize that that's true as long as I work hard for it. Right. <laughs> I think maybe in my teens and twenties, I thought, yeah, I can do whatever I want, but I didn't know how to work hard. And, but then once I had that confidence paired with, um, actually knowing how to do work, <laughs> which, which again, I think happened around age 30 for me, I was a late bloomer. Then I realized, oh, you know, this is, this is a confidence. This is a, how do I put it? Life. My parents basically taught me that, you know, the world was wide open to me. And I don't think a lot of kids actually grow up knowing that or believing that. And I did. I always have. I've, I've always thought if I want to do something, I can. Um, so they, they did instill that in me. I mean, um, to the point where, and this is a joke between me and my wife, Michaela. Um, I can't believe I'm saying this. So my dad, when I was a little kid, when I was sleeping, he used to whisper in my ear that I'm the best, that I'm amazing. He was trying to subconsciously plant this this confidence in me. Um, and I think as a young man that, you know, came out as a mix of, you know, probably insecurity and arrogance, which are the two things you get when you can't really own your confidence. It splits up into these two negative things. 
and I would like to think that they've kind of come back together in a healthier way. <laughs> but I guess I'll let I'll let the people in my life, you know, weigh in on that. Um, yeah, and <clears throat> let's 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 talk a little bit uh, more about your dad. I, I appreciate you sharing those those thoughts about your about your mom. Um, I'm 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 not a therapist. Obviously, I'm I'm an exercise physiologist, and yet. Um, I can hear that story and, and, and have tremendous empathy for the 13 year old version of you uh, and, 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 and what that what that must have been like to um, to almost feel <clears throat> a loss in a sense uh, to, to, to have lost your, your your mother. She became a little bit different person because of what she had to because what she had to deal with physically, she wasn't the same person. And uh, it, and although she remained part of your life, she was, she was different and that relationship was different. And so I wonder if, uh, if, if subconsciously you, you didn't feel some measure of loss, um, you know, in, 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 in that time. Um, well, it's, I, I want to pick up on this, you know, the, the idea of, you know, your, your parents instilling in you that you could, you could accomplish or achieve anything so long as you, so long as you worked hard, uh, and, and, and applied yourself. Um, your father was a runner and a mountain biker when you were growing up is, do you think that's where your love of those two sports originated? Oh, totally. Totally. Yes. Yeah. So the story goes, my great grandfather was a sprinter. My grandfather, um, when he was in college, was a national level sprinter. We had some family stories about him being the best in the country, having a record, all that. I don't know exactly how true the details of it are, but he was an excellent sprinter. And the story goes that my dad, um, wanting to be a little bit different from his dad, as like a little bit of an FU, I think, um, said, I'm going to be a distance runner, right? And so he was actually probably genetically, my dad was probably a miler. Um, and the few times he raced a mile, he was fast. That's probably what he should have trained for. Um, so he got into road running. Uh, actually, I think mostly in his 30s. It was most like he came back to it after high school. Like he raced cross country in high school, you know, lived his life in his 20s, has a bunch of crazy stories. And then when I was a kid is when he really picked up road running again. And I think I, so I grew up with it. I mean, he was, um, I'm not wearing the shirt now, but one of my other favorite cutoff shirts is a 1994 Lake Winnipesaukee relays shirt that I rescued from my dad's trash heap. So multiple years in a row, when I was, you know, eight to 12 years old, maybe my dad would uh, travel up to Lake Winnipesaukee, New Hampshire for anyone who doesn't know. I don't know if the race exists still, but it's a relay road race around the lake, <clears throat> 80 miles. I don't know. I'm making up the distance. And so you drive around in a van, and I was a kid and I was packed in this van with these sweaty dudes. And I remember one of them, <clears throat> it's a vivid memory from when I was a kid there and I loved it, but it was really smelly. And this one guy, Randy, um, wore some kind of deodorant that when he ran and when he sweated, it foamed up. And so he was walking around with like, he's dropping foam off his armpits. And I thought, what the hell is this? And like, everyone's like, no, it's normal. I'm like, that's not normal. I know that. <laughs> anyway, so, and, and like, you know, we got hotel rooms up there and it was like a mini, it was like the guy's vacation. And I was just hanging out in the van. Um, and, you know, there'd be runners over at the house and my dad did road races on the weekends and he got pretty fast. You know, he was, um, uh, upper 
fifteens for five k. So you know he was competitive, um, and his training style, like I think a lot of guys in the in the eighties, was they would just go hammer the shit out of each other for like, you know, for like a ten mile loop, maybe I don't know four or five days a week. He was probably running thirty to forty miles a week all out. That was his training plan, and uh, there are some other people now that do that. Matt Lipsy, that's kind of his training plan. You've talked to him; he just goes out and runs hard as hell for some <laughs> distance, and then does it again the next day. He does. You know, there's no structure there, but it works for him. Anyway, so yeah, that's that's where I got the love of running from, and so I tried it when I was ten. It was I think my first road race, and then by twelve, I was running middle school cross country, and like I think all all runners do especially as a kid, I developed um, <clears throat> a complicated relationship with, with pain and suffering, right? Cause like, I still don't like suffering. And then it really scared me. Like I still get nervous about races because I know the suffering that is to come. And now the reason I get nervous is I wonder, will I rise to that challenge? Right. But I think when I was a kid, I was afraid of the suffering, but I knew I was going to do it. Like I knew I wasn't going to be a wuss. So, um, middle school and high school cross country taught me that, you know, uh, we had this great high school coach, um, Mike Benzinski, uh, Manchester, Connecticut, which was, so I come from a running town. That's the other piece. So Manchester, Connecticut has this big Thanksgiving day road race. It's the biggest in the country, 10 to 12,000 people. It's usually won by an Olympian, you know, um, at my peak of road running, my best finish there, I think was like 21st, which I was really proud of. Um, and so we come from a running town and so it was also cool to be a runner, right? Like only a handful of times in high school was anyone like, you know, Oh, you, you pussy, you're a runner. We were fairly well respected. Um, and so that probably reinforced that like running is okay. Running is cool, you know? Um, <clears throat> and it was only later in life that, uh, and as every road runner has stories, probably over a hundred times, you know, I've had people try to run me off the road, throw things at me, yell homophobic slurs hundreds of times, but in high school that really wasn't happening. And so like my childhood in high school, like running was cool. I was, I was naturally pretty good at it. And so it solidified that this is a way to have an identity to manufacture some, some meaning, which is still what sports is for me. It's a way of making meaning and what I think is a world that doesn't intrinsically have any, uh, that's, the scientist and cynic in me. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where all the running came from. It came from dad. It came from high school. Um, it came from a coach who, who taught us to, I don't want to say enjoy suffering because we all feared it and we hated him for it. Right. Like there was this, um, if I'm going on too long, just, just stop me. But no, I love it. Uh, the story that I love to tell about him is that one of his goals was as he would say, you know, to turn us into men, whatever that means. And so we would do a really hard workout, like six by 800 all out, um, which is a kind of like a puke inducing workout. And then he would say, um, and he's not this big, tough guy. He's the skinny kind of nerdy older runner guy, really nerdy actually. And he, and he would say to us, okay, the boys are done. The men have one more. And so then, you know, we're like teenage boys. And so we all look at each other and it's like, who is going to, who's going to man up? And generally the varsity guys did. And some of the JV guys did. And if you didn't, you felt really ashamed. Um, and so he taught us that there's pride in self-induced suffering, which is something that an endurance athlete has to find pride in. 
Because if you don't, you're not going to train hard enough and you're not going to be able to race hard enough. You have to find something about the pain that's, that's enjoyable. And so high school cross country did that. So dad got me into running high school and the town I lived in made it cool, made it something that I was going to do for the rest of my life. Where did the mountain bike part come in? Yeah. So, so my dad, that's the more I'm talking about this. I realize I have to thank my dad for a lot. Right. Um, he was also kind of an all-around athlete. So as a kid, he also played in the basketball leagues and softball, and volleyball, probably other stuff too. Um, you know, he's more of an all-around athlete than I am. I don't play any ball sports, right? <laughs> um, as my high school coach called, he said, ah, oh, ball chasers, guys playing ball sports. <laughs> anyway, um, so he was kind of game for anything. And I was a kid, I liked riding bikes. And so I'm sure it was his idea, but he's like, hey, we live near a, a trail system. Uh, the Case Mountain Trail System in Manchester, Connecticut, which if you're in southern New England, is kind of a destination for mountain biking. And and it was then too, even though in the early and mid 90s, um, you know, mountain bike trails were just hiking trails that, that we poached was all it was. And they were brutal. So we got on bikes that probably weren't built for it. And we tried it. And I think within a year, by the time I was 12 or 13, we both had what at the time were decent mountain bikes, no suspension, you know, small wheels, all that. And so throughout my teenage years and a little bit in my 20s, me and my dad, and we had a couple of mutual friends who would join us, we would occasionally go out and, and ride. So mountain biking started because my dad and I, when I was 12 and he was 40, decided we were going to learn how to do it. Um, and, and, and we did. And there was a lot of blood. You know, we both got the clipless pedals, lots of falling over, um, you know, lots of minor injuries <clears throat> and we beat the shit out of each other. I mean, it was always competitive. And I saw my dad yesterday. We were just hanging out. Actually, I rode the Case Mountain Trails yesterday. I still go back home to ride them because now they're great. Now it's like Mecca. And we're hanging out on his porch. And I said, I'm going to do this podcast. And I've got to talk about how you and I learned how to mountain bike. And he always says, do you remember when you were about 17 and it was the first time that you could drop me on a bike? Dad, I do not remember that. He remembers it so distinctly as this terrible and yet great moment in his life when I surpassed him. And he said, you were so far ahead of me and I threw my bike to the ground, which we did a lot. Back then, we used to throw our bikes and swear if we couldn't get over something. And I'm like, Dad, I don't remember that. The way I remember it is it wasn't until my 20s when I was able to drop you because he was actually uh, a really strong athlete up until I would say fairly recently. And he still mountain bikes a bit. He still runs, but he's got all these long-term injuries that, that he's dealing with and he's almost 70. So he's, you know, trying to keep that, that going, but he was really strong. I mean, I don't think I could drop him really until he was 50. Um, <laughs> but the story differs. <clears throat> well, I think any, <clears throat> any parent um, can relate to <clears throat> that moment uh, when their uh, offspring uh, who has de developed a passion for the things that they enjoy um, begins to surpass them from a performance standpoint. While that 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 moment might not have been terribly significant or important to you as a 17 year old, it was for sure incredibly important and significant to your dad. Uh, that's that's why he yeah. remembers it so vividly. Well, that introduction to mountain biking. <clears throat> would eventually be a godsend for you, uh, as we will talk about uh, in a little bit. 
I want to follow up though on something that 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 you had that that, that you mentioned. You know this this idea of uh, of your parents fostering this notion that you were you know that you were capable of anything, essentially that you set your mind to achieve. You know, so long as you worked hard enough. Um, interestingly enough, you said um, that in uh, that in college cross country was the first time that you really worked hard on running. You said or anything else. Um, as a senior at St. Michael's College, you made the Division II Nationals, the first from your college to do that. Uh, and I, I think you ran a 31-47 at Franklin Park. Is that, yeah, that, yeah. That's correct. Um, but, but that senior season was, as you described, your, quote, one good, healthy season um, uh, as, a, as an undergrad. Uh, Drew, why, why was that? Why, why only one healthy season uh, as, as an undergrad? Well, I had three healthy seasons as a runner at St. Michael's College, which has a cross-country team, but not a track team, which was on purpose. I liked running, but I didn't want to be competing year-round at that point. I, I didn't want – so I don't have any track PRs, really, because I didn't run track in college or after. But it was only um, – so my sophomore year of college is when – so even though I'd, I'd been running for years up until that point and training hard you know, during the season – I was running low volume and I did not run year round up until that point. So winters, I did almost nothing. Summers, I did very little. So I would show up to whatever season I was in high school or college cross country out of shape and get fast by the end of the season. And as a sophomore in college, I read uh, running with the Buffaloes, um, which for anyone who's not familiar is a book about the 1998, maybe NCAA championship team from the university of Colorado Boulder. And just, and I also read uh, Once a Runner, um, the classic John Parker novel. <clears throat> and so I sort of got the running bug and I realized, hey, this is something I want to invest more energy in. And so my friends and I, after my sophomore year of college, this is a story of entitlement. I was going to say we scrapped together some money, but, you know, I'm sure our parents helped us with this. We had the freedom to go to Boulder, Colorado for six weeks that, that summer after my sophomore year of college. And me and a few of my friends actually trained every day. Wow. At altitude. And we got back for my junior year of college cross country. And I was fast, like way faster than I'd ever been. I'd lost a couple pounds of baby fat. I was lean and mean. I had all those red blood cells. I had actually run 70 miles a week all summer as opposed to 10. And uh, it was great. But I overdid it and I pulled a quad uh, somehow. How do you pull a quad as a distance runner? Well, I did. I remember it was a four mile easy morning run during preseason and I pulled it and I felt it go. And I, I uh, raced on it once with a half a bottle of ibuprofen in me. Um, and then it was just toasted. So I lost my junior season. There was no track the next year. We went back to, back to Boulder, Colorado that next summer. Uh, and I trained harder, but maybe a little bit smarter. Now I just got luckier is all it was trained harder. Didn't get hurt. Um, came back for my senior season and other than a sprained ankle, which cost me two weeks in the middle of the season, um, I had a good season and I won some races and I finally, you know, sort of reached my potential as a runner for the first time. And it felt so good. And, um, looking back, I can't believe that I let that take up all my time, but I sort of felt like, oh man, you know, training hard for this season is the only thing I can really work hard at. And so I continued my pattern of like being a lackluster student. I don't know. I just kind of generally being an unimpressive human being uh, other than working hard at running. 
but I realized, and I only know this now looking back, that that was the first thing I really put myself all the way into and it paid off and it made me realize that, oh, there's, there's value in, or I can work way harder than I've been working at everything in life. And eventually that lesson sunk in. Um, so yeah, that's the story of college cross country. And I had a great coach, Joe Connolly, who's now actually the head of run Vermont. So he's the race director for the Vermont city marathon. Um, and he runs that organization now. Um, so we're still friends. So that was a great experience. I had great friends on the team. We're all out of touch now for complicated reasons, but, uh, it was an awesome experience and it taught me that, yeah, there's, there's value in hard work and you can't just coast because I did a lot of coasting before that. Well, that hard work uh, obviously paid off that senior season uh, so much so uh, that uh, St. Michael's will honor you with a very special recognition soon. You want, you want to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. So they've inducted me into their, athletics hall of fame. So, uh, in September, uh, we're going up there for the, for the ceremony. And, um, I think I give a little speech and it will include an apology for being a below average human being for the four years that I was there. And a thank you for the opportunity, um, of running there really, you know, um, I have a lot of regrets about college and about, you know, myself as a, as a younger man. So, I don't know if that's really the place to, or if this is the place to, to air that, but I probably will take that opportunity. Do you think that lesson of hard work would be the prevailing message that you would share with that 21 year old version of yourself? If you had the opportunity to go back and, and uh, give your 21 year old self the, the, the perspective that you have now. Yeah. I mean, so I, I teach college now and um, I've been, I mean, even as a grad student recently, I taught a lot of college too. So for 10 years, I've been teaching college level. And whenever I have a chance, whenever I feel like it's appropriate, my, my message to students is, if I ever feel like there's a moment for life advice, is you're at an age now where, where you can do everything. And I, this is the opposite advice from what certain corners of academia and the social world are trying to push on young people now, which is uh, mental health is great. Mental health is great. I feel like there's a push towards telling young people that they don't need to do too much and they need to be careful of their mental health. That is true. But the message I try to convey is you don't have, like, let's assume that you have some resources and you're not working two jobs on the side, which a lot of my students do now. But if you're not, your job right now is just to be a student and you can make a ton of friends. You can make some mistakes, say with partying, you can be an A student, you can get into a passion like sports or art, and you can do it 100%. And you don't need 10 hours of sleep a night, you don't need to wake up at noon. This is the time in your life when you can start kicking ass. And I wish that I had been able to kick ass then. Because the opportunity, if you're at a four year college, and you're not say working a ton on the side, the opportunity is huge. And I did not appreciate that. So as good a job as my parents did with loving me and supporting me, um, for whatever reason, I didn't internalize some of the, uh, you know, work ethic of life. And I was a bit entitled. I kind of felt like things were just, you know, should just be given to me, I think. 
And so that's a message I try to convey. Like you can work your ass off right now and you're going to love it because it's all you have to do. Yeah. So obviously, obviously your, your, your parents taught you and instilled in you the value of hard work. Um, but, 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 but sometimes as, as kids, we can go, we can go deaf to that, to that message. Right. right. Um, at, at any point um, in, in your, in your high school career or, or more specifically during that four years of college, did you ever have a coach or, or a professor pull you aside and say, Hey, listen, you, you, you have more to give here. And, uh, and, and I want to see you rise to the occasion. In other words, did you ever have anyone else influential in your life aside from your parents um, uh, reiterate uh, that message of, of, of hard work? Yes. Um, so I think that that most often happens, those sort of come to Jesus moments or those learning moments happen when you're visibly failing at something. And because I was never visibly failing at running, even though I wasn't working hard at it up until age 20, no, you know, like none of my coaches or anything were like, you can work harder because my results were decent. But definitely in college, um, I got some low grades in some classes and I really just wasn't working hard in college. I was doing what I had to do to get B's and C's. Um, I still don't know why that is, but I did have some professors who much to their credit were like, look, you can do better than this. And um, I'm not sure if I believed that I, that I couldn't or if I didn't want to. I'm not sure what it was, but there were opportunities there for me to learn from from a handful of the faculty members, um, and it's only in hindsight that that I've learned from that. Um, <clears throat> post college, you developed a, a decade long long obsession with the marathon distance, which you uh, which you mentioned. Um, where did that st stem from? How do you how do you go from racing, you know, the the, the 10k cross country distance to making the jump up to the marathon distance? I think because I wanted to feel like the running that I was doing was um, sort of grand, sort of grandiose, right? Like that's, that's one of the best things about running is that you can build your own little world where your training and your racing and your lifestyle of doing this is very romantic. And in college, there's this structure. You've got the NCAA, you've got a meet schedule, you've got a team. And then after college, it's, well, there's nothing, I mean, unless you're really elite, there's nothing really comparable to, to give you that structure to your sporting life, which for me up until that point was the biggest part of my life. It's the, it's the thing I worked hard at. So I thought, okay, well, in the absence of like, you know, a cross country team to join or like, you know, there's too many road races to choose from, you know, uh, what's going to feel the most competitive and the most worthy of my time. I thought, well, the marathon is what everyone jumps up to. And, you know, you train for one or two a year. And so you get to have this big bulk of training and not a lot of racing. And I prefer the training more than the racing. Um, and it feels grandiose, right? It's the marathon distance, you know, Athens. <laughs> and uh, I was never suited for it, but I crushed myself for 10 years in pursuit of getting better suited to it. And it never really worked the way I wanted it to. What did you, well, it, there must have been something that you enjoyed about the training. Um, what what was it about training for marathons that uh, that clicked with you? It was hard. It was really hard. It was um, it was brutal, and it was mostly solitary. I say mostly because this is also around the time that I made. Um, so I have a couple of best friends from high school who I'm still really close with, 
but my more recent best friends, um, actually two guys, you know, because they race Aaron Stone and Matt Shamey, I would say are my two, you know, modern best buddies. And I met them through running. And for a couple of years, we were on the same page with regard to um, training for marathons and road races. That was about 2009 through 2012. And we're still great friends, but we don't run as much anymore together. Um, sorry, the question was, oh, man, I just I started talking about those buddies and I totally got sidetracked. What 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 was it about marathon training? Oh, yeah, thank you. Most? Largely solitary and brutal. And it just felt very aesthetically pleasing. Like, you know, I'm going to go do this big loop. I'm going to run the second half of it hard. I'm going to finish with nothing left and I'm going to have to be on the couch all day. And uh, so it's like you punch your ticket. Boom. I've done something hard today and um, you feel accomplished. And that also that like delayed gratification. I'm training for a race that's eight months from now. I love now, it. You, I, I, I think you downplayed your, uh, uh, your ability uh, uh, and your performance uh, as a marathoner a little bit. Cause you, you, you did have some highlight races. Uh, you did have some, some significant moments uh, in the discipline of marathoning. Can you talk about those? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, so there are definitely nothing to sneeze at, but um, I think because I had a good season in cross country, I assumed that the trajectory could continue and that the improvement that I'd made going from, you know, age 18 to 21, I assumed I could make the same improvement from 22 to 25, say. And I assumed I could apply that to the marathon. What I didn't realize is I'd already kind of hit my limit of talent. And so all I could do was transition into being a marathoner, but that doesn't mean I was going to get two steps higher on that, on that ladder. Um, but I ran, let's see, my PR is like 234.03 at Vermont City in uh, 2008. Um, it was 102nd at the Boston Marathon in 2007. Uh, I ran 238, but that was the year with a 20-mile-per-hour headwind. Um, and that, that race, I wouldn't say that I have regrets, but had the weather been different that day, that probably would have been my PR. Like that was, that was the day that I could have gotten down around 230, potentially even under if all the stars aligned. Um, I won the Providence marathon in 2009. Um, it was the second year they had it and I put asterisks, asterisks on all these things. They didn't have prize money. So there weren't a ton of fast people there. Um, but I won it and that felt great. I ran 235, but I missed all my water bottles. I didn't eat or drink anything. Um, so that, that again, probably could have been a PR. So, and I've never run a marathon on a fast course on a cool day where everything's gone right. <laughs> so one of my regrets is that like, I trained so hard for the marathon and all I ever wanted to do was break 230 and it never happened. Um, so you, <laughs> you, 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 you describe going to, uh, back to Boulder, um, just prior to your senior year at, at, at St. Mike's and, and um, being a little bit smarter about your about your preparation, um, and uh, having a having a healthier uh, and therefore not surprisingly uh, a, a little bit better uh, year from a performance standpoint, um, I, I suspect that um, that 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 many of the things that you learned as an undergrad at St. Mike's, although the although the the distances were different, uh, I suspect that that 
some of those lessons that you apply to, to that decade of marathon training or, or maybe more, maybe you didn't, but what I'm curious about is how healthy were you during that decade long period of marathon training? Because clearly uh, marathon training volume is, uh, you know, is exponentially greater than, than 10 K training volume potentially. Um, uh, so were you able to stay healthy during that, that 10 year period of time that you were training and racing marathons? No, I was not. <laughs> um, I stayed healthy enough and I was stubborn enough that I was able to run through most of my injuries. Um, I mean, my uh, marathon PR, I ran on kind of a non-functional Achilles tendon. And I think probably also a stress fracture in my ankle, probably because it's within a week of finishing, I could barely walk. Um, and I had to take, take a, like a month off of running. Um, but no, I was, um, I was doing no strength training. Um, I was, so I'm five foot 10 and in college, my morning wake up weight when I was racing. So everyone's like, Oh, you know, how much do you weigh? You weigh yourself in the morning when you wake up, that's your lightest, but your most consistent. So racing weight in college for me was 145 with marathoning. I got down to 141 and I did not have four pounds of anything to lose. So I became very efficient at running just under six minute pace all day. Um, it was never comfortable. I did not have the engine anymore or the musculature to make that comfortable, but I could do it. And it's all I could do. I mean, if I hit a hill, like I remember even when I was in, you know, mid two thirties marathon shape, if I hit a steep enough hill, I'd have to walk. I mean, I would get winded walking up the stairs. I had lost all muscle tone. Um, and I did get lots of little injuries. You know, I had some it band syndrome. Uh, there was that Achilles, actually my 10 K track PR from my Boston marathon buildup in 07, I ran on an Achilles that really didn't work. Um, but I did it anyway. And then I ran the Boston marathon on it. No, Vermont city, Vermont city. My marathon PR is off of that. So I just ran through stuff, but I was not healthy. My, my shoulders, my uh, shoulder blades hurt for 10 years and I would have my wife massage them and I would scream in pain. And I went to a chiropractor and they're like, oh, you need to be, you know, doing this adjustment. And it was only, you know, five or 10 years ago when I started doing some more mountain biking and some more weight training that I realized it was weakness. It was just <laughs> my back was so weak that running made it tired and made it hurt. And that hasn't happened since once. So, no, I was not healthy. I was I mean, and my volume wasn't huge. I was running 70 to hundred miles a week, kind of in that range, right? It was as much as I could do. And I was doing really hard, long runs so hard that I really couldn't do other workouts. Maybe once or twice a month, I do some track reps, right? But it was all about that long, how long can I hold marathon pace? And, um, it works to the extent that metabolically, I was very tuned to that, you know, particular ratio of carbs and fats or whatever that you need for a marathon. And it worked just well enough that I ran some, you know, all of my shorter road race PRs off of that, you know, my, my road 10 K PRs and stuff and 10 miles and half marathon off of that. But in everything else in life, I sucked. Couldn't walk up the stairs, you know, probably couldn't carry a big load of, you know, firewood inside. Um, and, but that's not how really good marathoners do it, right? Like, you know, the best marathoners in the world can still run uphill. They can still carry a load of fire, uh, firewood, maybe not a very heavy one. So I added in my head that I had to become this purpose-built machine, but I neglected everything other than 
running this pace for this distance. So no, I was not healthy. <laughs> well, yeah, and and you sort of you, you sort of lost touch with uh, with with the with the message that your your father w- was intending to teach you. Um, uh, uh, indirectly and that is that there is value to being a generalist uh obviously you, yes. you have to dedicate yourself specifically to the sport that you are participating in um but but there is absolutely a, a benefit in being in being a generalist during the times at which you are not specifically training for your sport yeah yeah and you and i have talked about this i mean i have sought coaching advice from you before and uh the thing that i still neglect is to take an off season where I do things differently. I just do the same stuff year round because I'm obsessed. But no, that that's that's a message that I, you know, I just uh, and my dad used to say, "Man, you're working harder at this than I ever did." But what I think he also meant was, "I'm not sure you're doing this right." <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> I think without 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 question, although you know, I, I suspect at least part of it w- w- would have been for him sort of hard to argue with the results like you were you were getting the results but he probably also saw that that uh that that maybe you really hadn't optimized your potential perhaps because of a lack of of a lack of attention to the other little things outside of outside of 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 running that that we know now that are important from a performance standpoint well many many runners evolve uh from road running to trail running for a variety of reasons why did you uh, evolve uh, from from road running to, to trail and mountain running? Yeah, um, I wish it was a better reason because I think that um, trail and mountain running is way cooler and the scene is way better than road running. But the real reason is just that um, I was having issues with my feet. So the last five years of my uh, road running, so late 20s to early 30s, every road race and even every hard workout, I was limited by my feet burning. And some people are incredulous. Like this isn't a thing. I'm telling you, it's a thing. My feet burned so bad that sometimes I just dropped out of races or I'd slow down or the pain would be so distracting that I couldn't focus on, you know, putting my energy into running faster. And I tried different shoes. I tried putting duct tape on my feet, talc powder, body glide. I even used a metronome for a while in my headphones and shortened my stride. I changed my whole cadence just to see if it was an overstriding issue. Nothing worked. And eventually I was like, I, I can't train this hard and be capable of you know running X, X time and then add two minutes to my race time because of my feet. And no one had any ideas and I gave up. Uh, so around age 32, I ran my last marathon with my friend, Matt Shamey, who won that, that race. And around mile 16, I was, I was running with him and I was in great marathon shape and I just stopped and walked. Because my feet were not, they were going to be hamburger if I did, you know, 10 more miles at sub six minute pace. And um, I would still love to know what the hell caused it. Um, But I found that when running off road, and this includes cross country, it doesn't happen. It's a pavement issue. So um, I figured, well, those are, those are my road PRs. They're done. Time to go to the trails and found that I loved it more and I didn't get nervous for the races at first because the pressure was off and I almost immediately made awesome friends and realized that, uh, Hey, especially if it's uphill, here's a place where I'm not limited by my feet. 
Ironically, I am because probably the same thing that's causing my foot burning, which is landing on the outside of my feet. Is that inverted or everted? I always mix them up. Uh, yeah, that would be eversion landing yeah. on the outside of your feet. Extreme eversion. I've always been prone to ankle sprains. Um, and I've got a handle on it more now because I wear very low profile shoes with no heel drop and that helps. But so during all this, you know, the transition, the trail and mountain running, you know, the threat now was ankle injuries. But as long as I didn't have a sprained ankle, um, I could run as hard as I wanted uphill in the woods. And it was just about my engine and how much I could suffer. And it wasn't about my feet. And um, that was a revelation. So you... <clears throat> You, you mentioned that you mentioned the trail running scene that it, that, that it was way different than the road running scene. Uh, how would you compare and contrast um, the road running and, and trail running scenes? <laughs> I'm a man of strong opinions about certain things, and this is one of them. Let's hear. Uh, it. No, well, no. You know what? Most of the road runners that I am still friends with are awesome, and actually, you know, the road running scene is fine. Um, it's it's the cycling scene that I want to bitch about and we can do that later. But anyway, um, no, it's just, uh, people are more laid back, um, still quietly competitive. Okay. So take a guy like Matt Lipsy. Um, he is like the cool, he's the coolest cat, but he wants to eat you alive. Right. So, and, 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 and we're good friends, but, um, you know, whenever we were on a course where we were actually, where it was actually a competition, because if it's technical, there's no way I can keep up with him. I'm sure he wanted to eat me alive. Um, you know, you take a guy like Josh Ference, where he wears that aggression on his sleeve, right? So I'm not saying that trail runners are necessarily more laid back, but most of them at least put out that vibe. And when the race is over, these are people I want to hang out with. And, um, you know, I'm hopefully lifelong friends now with a lot of these guys. Um, and I'm not sure what the difference is. Is it that we're racing in a more beautiful place and that we do our training in the woods? I mean, there's got to be a personality difference between someone who wants to spend two hours a day in the woods versus two hours a day on roads with cars. Those have got to be different people. Yeah. Well, well, in, in, in reality, um, <laughs> most trail runners and mountain runners were road runners at, at, at one point. Uh, and yet, I think what's fascinating is is that there is something about the trail and mountain running culture um, that 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 doesn't lend itself to that road running vibe sort of infecting the trail running scene. Infecting isn't the right word, but you you, you understand. <laughs> I do. You understand what I'm saying. So there's there, there's something about leaving something at the door uh, when when road runners enter the trail running scene that. Um, um, and, and yeah, I, I mean, is it, is it the environment? Uh, is it, is it the community? I guess here's where an anthropologist would uh, probably have a little bit of a leg up trying to interpret this. Especially a cultural anthropologist, which I'm not, <laughs> I, all I can do is conjecture. And I think it's where we spend our time. I mean, as soon as I made the transition from spending most of my time on the roads, dodging cars to being mostly alone in the woods, which now is like a driving force of my life. I need to be in the woods two to three hours a day alone, or I don't function that I think it changes you. And I, I think it gives you more time to reflect and, you know, connect with different things. I don't think you can really connect with anything except your body when you're road running. And that's important. 
obviously connecting with your body as an athlete is super important. No, I agree. Being inward, but in the woods, I don't know. I think it probably, I'm just conjecturing totally. I think it's made me a happier person. Mm. Maybe everyone's a little more laid back when they spend that much time in the woods. No, I don't I, look, I don't think it's far fetched conjecture. We know that, uh, the Japanese uh, have an expression uh, uh, and uh, this philosophy called Shinrin Yoku, uh, this concept of forest bathing, that there is that there is some metaphysical benefit um, when when human beings go into the natural environment, into the natural world that you just don't get uh, in in the in the artificial um, uh, you know, environments that we build up and, and that we live in. Uh, I, I do think that there's a that there's a real thing. Some some scientists have actually claimed to be able to measure the benefit uh, of forest bathing. I don't know wh whether that's true or not. All I know is like you, um, I feel more connected to the natural world when I spend more time in the natural world. Does that make me uh, a happier, more content human being? Perhaps it does. Does that um does that is that vibe given off when I am in a community and 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 in and in fellowship with other like-minded people? Does that does that does that vibe just become accentuated exponentially? Um, uh, you know, with, with with within that that trail and mountain running scene, particularly in that post-trail running scene, perhaps that's true. Yeah, no, I think that's it. I mean, I think for for any endurance sport, you know, even ones on the road, you when when you get together with other endurance athletes you all feel like you've tapped into something primal and basic and you wonder why other people haven't and so you share that and you're like oh man we've got something figured out and that's a little arrogant but you know that's how most of us feel i don't want to put words in your mouth but that's how me and my endurance friends feel and then i think when you get in a group of people who do all that in the woods and are competing in the woods and in beautiful places that's just another level you're like oh man everyone around here has been training in the same kind of places I have, and they have the same appreciation. And look, we're going to go kill each other, make each other puke. And then we're going to have this camaraderie afterwards, this understanding of each other that most people don't have. Hmm. Sounds very romantic, but that's how I think about a lot of things. Well, I, I, <laughs> I, I, but, but, I, but I think you nail it. Um, so um, you, you, you talked about some of your, uh, some of your experiences with the loon mountain race and, and, and with mountain running, um, in, in 2018, you'd stretch up to the 50 K, uh, distance. Uh, how much of an asset was your road marathoning experience as you, as you, as you sort of made that leap, um, from mid distance mountain races to the, to the ultra? Well, I think it probably wasn't too much of an asset because, um, when I started trail and mountain running in 2013, I almost completely stopped road running. And for the most part, I also stopped doing fast workouts. All my hard workouts were uphill and slow. So by 2018, when I did a couple of 50 Ks, um, the first one of which, uh, was it, uh, ragged, the ragged 50 K great day. But the first 10 miles are road and basically dirt road trail. Um, so you have to have a, a, a roadrunner stride and that's where, you know, being a marathoner would have helped, but I pretty much lost all my turnover. So me and my buddy, Matt just ran, you know, like seven minutes, seven thirty pace being really conservative, knowing that I wasn't suited for it anymore and being afraid of the distance ahead. I mean, it was actually a 34 mile race and it got harder as it went, you know, the trails got more technical, got more climby. 
So we were very conservative for the first third of that race. Um, so no, I really, uh, because I let all of my road running speed disappear over those couple years, uh, and now it's gone. I mean, it's totally gone. Like I go to the track now, um, and I'm lucky to turn over, you know, a 39 or 40 second, you know, 200. It's just gone. Um, so yeah, it really didn't. Um, but I did train long for it. You know, I was doing, I think I got up to, I, I did a marathon in the woods, you know, as, as, as my last long run for that. So I did adapt to, you know, running fairly hard in the woods for, you know, three to four hours. And I loved that year of training. That's probably my favorite year of competing was 2018 because I was still fit for Loon and a handful that was maybe the only mountain race I did, but it went well. And then I got to do a couple 50 Ks. Um, the first one was great, but then by the second one, I was kind of injured and the heat really got me um, because I sweat a lot. I sweat more than actually just about more than anyone I've tested and I've tested a lot of people. Um, so I wither in a long race in the heat. I just can't, re I can't replace enough body fluids, but that's the long answer to your short question. Were you, uh, you, 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 you mentioned injuries again. <clears throat> were you, were you less susceptible to injury once you moved off the pavement? Yeah. Yes, I was. Um, I had a couple really healthy years. I don't think I had any major interruptions for injury between 2013 and 2018, which was when I was doing you know, just trail and mountain running. And a part of that is, so in my twenties, I completely stopped mountain biking for a couple of years. I didn't even own a mountain bike. And then in my early thirties, I bought one again, rode occasionally. And so for those years, I started to add back in just like one day a week of mountain biking. And so I was backing off of the running. My hard runs were uphill. Everything was slower in the woods. So yeah, I really wasn't hurt for about five years. Um, but I did something stupid and that was in the fall of 2018, I modified a pair of my uh, running shoes. So because I land on the outside of my feet, I really wear out that lateral aspect of the sole. And so I thought, that's not good. And so I grafted some extra rubber from another shoe onto that spot. But I didn't do it evenly. And these were actually road flats. And it was November of 2018, and I was doing a treadmill climb because I was so obsessed with mountain running at that point that I was like, I'm going to do treadmill climbs and uphill workouts year round. That's going to be good. Right. And I gave myself a stress fracture from, I mean, it, I felt it during an uphill workout. It may not have happened really during the uphill workout, but wearing these modified shoes put a stress fracture in my fifth metatarsal. And I wasn't quite sure what it was. <clears throat> so I stopped running for a few weeks um, and just, you know, was on the mountain bike. And I remember uh, January 2019, I was doing a mountain bike ride with Ethan Neto. Um, and I had to jump off the bike, you know, like to bail off of an obstacle. And I landed on my foot and it just broke clean through. And I knew, oh, that was a stress fracture and, and I just snapped it. So then I had a broken fifth metatarsal in early 2019 and actually taking a big rest and I did nothing for two weeks. And then I did pool running every day and then some basement cycling. And then I came back and had my best mountain bike season yet. I was like, okay, I can't, I'm not a good runner this year. So it's the first year that I really tried to race mountain bikes more seriously. Up until that point, I'd done one race a year off of almost no bike training just to see how it went. And it went well. And I was racing cat one all of a sudden, like, whoa, this is, that was the year before actually, but I was doing well in cat one. Wow. I didn't think I could do this. 
um, but I tried to amp my running back up. The intention was still to have running be my primary sport. I was feeling so good off of this rest after this, you know, broken foot. But then in a mountain bike race, I was running my bike through some mud and I rolled that, that bad foot. And I think a month of being in a boot made that tendon that inserts on the fifth metatarsal head and that muscle attached to it, you know, peroneus longus, peroneus brevis, one of the two, it all weakened. And it was already weak because I'd had an, an ankle injury from a year before where I tweaked it. So that whole muscle tendon complex was atrophied. And I heard something pop. And to this day, and it's on my Instagram uh, feed somewhere. Um, well, I'll show you because I, I know the podcast is not visual, but here's that tendon. And to this day, you can see it catch and snap back and forth. I can see it. It's, it's fucked, right? It still is. And I didn't know how serious it was. And so I trained through that. And so my left leg was just a mess in summer of 2019. And I'm training through it, trying to get back into running, even as I'm mountain biking more. And so I, I got some orthotics and it was not a good experience. And I got the sense that the person making my orthotics didn't <clears throat> understand biomechanics, didn't understand feet. And that's not what you want. And uh, she put me in orthotics and I wore them for a few months. And I thought, okay, maybe this is what I need. Maybe my feet are messed up because of, my, of their structure. And I was trail running and the orthotics were meant to put extra pressure on the second metatarsal head in my other foot because I was developing a hammer toe. So she wanted to correct that. And I hit a rock and we're not exactly sure what happened, but a later MRI um, would indicate that I probably tore the plantar fascia where it attaches to the metatarsal head. And so for two years, maybe three years, I could not run without pain. And, uh, so this whole year I came back from the, you know, that broken foot and then the associated tendon and muscle injury. And then my other foot now had a metatarsal injury so that I couldn't run trails at all because if I stepped on anything wrong, it was like I was being stabbed and that went on for two years. So 2020, I'm like, you know what? I've modified my shoes. I'm just going to keep going for this. Screw these injuries. I can do this. And so as COVID hit, um, me and my uh, running buddies got this running group going. It, it actually grew as COVID started. It grew to like 12 guys, which is really the wrong time for that. And we were like, this is where we're going to get our social interaction. We all have time to train now. We'll keep our distance. And so we did some great long runs and I built my trail long run back up to 20 miles way too quickly. And every time I did, now I got a left knee injury because my left foot was just so screwy. And um, so in 2020, I just, I couldn't run for four months. Couldn't run a step because of my knee now, even with all the other injuries that hadn't healed, my knee wouldn't let me run at all. So I said, screw it. It's COVID. There's nothing else to do. I'm just going to mountain bike all the time. And, um, that was three years ago and I haven't tried to run more than 30 miles a week since then. <laughs> now that, that, that COVID story is a story that, that, uh, I have heard, uh, <laughs> Time and time again. Uh, in fact, I mean, we 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 know recreationally, um, uh, you know, recreational time uh, uh, increased significantly for for everyone, whether you were an athlete or not during the time of COVID. Um, for athletes, uh, endurance athletes specifically, uh, who all of a sudden found themselves with a little bit more discretionary time. The question is, you know, 
what's the best use of that additional discretionary time that all of a sudden I have now that I didn't have before. Um, <laughs> I, ideally, that additional discretionary time probably would have been better served uh, in, in other uh, complementary activities like strength work and, and, and soft tissue work. But I can I can absolutely appreciate uh, endurance athletes leaning in a little bit uh, harder and heavier on, on the things that bring them the most joy. But, you, you, you know, your competitive focus now is is mountain biking. Within the sport of mountain biking, of course, there are there are multiple disciplines, including cross country, trail, all mountain, downhill, enduro, short track, free ride, ultra distance. You know, as, I, as I'm saying that, I'm realizing that uh, there probably are there's probably as much as much diversity competitively in, in mountain biking as there is in running, interestingly enough. Um, so but but what is your preference uh, in the in the world of mountain biking? Where where do you find uh, your sweet spot is competitively? Cross country. And I kind of hate that we even have to give that a term because cross country mountain biking is mountain biking. It's just, <laughs> it's true. you go to trails and you ride whatever's there. Um, but that being said, it makes sense that, that, you know, racing has to be, has to have different names for the disciplines because cross country racing, at least at the local level is usually not super technical. I wish it was more technical. That's a gripe I have, but no, definitely cross country. Um, I can't race downhill. I don't have I don't have the bike for it and I don't have the lack of fear for it. Hmm. Um, are you a fast and flowy guy or are you a gnar type of rider? Um, I guess a little bit of both. I mean, I would say gnar is what I'm better at relative to the guys I race because the guys that I race in cat one and open pro tend to spend a lot of time on road bikes. Um, and I spend zero time on the roads. I mean, if I'm on the road, it's cause I'm riding to a trail and um, so those guys are better at pedaling than me, especially if it's just like, you know, full power for an extended period of time. I need it to be more like intervals because mountain biking, if you just go to a trail, especially if it's technical, it's intervals. I mean, um, you're using your upper body to get over stuff. Um, you're making huge power outputs for some big moves and then your legs don't do anything for another minute. Right. Um, so NAR is what I prefer in a racing setting because it lets me be more competitive. Mm. Um, how do you think mountain bike <clears throat> training, uh, compares with mountain running training? Ooh, easier. I have never suffered as much on a bike as I have running because as long as you're on a trail, you're always going to be limited at some point by your ability to control the bike. And, um, I mean, maybe there's some people whose bike handling is so good that they're not, but you know, uh, yeah, I mean like in a race, there's elements of suffering in a mountain bike race, but for me, it's mostly my lower back hurts, my feet hurt. Um, but the aerobic hell, the anaerobic hell of, of running and mountain running is just beyond. Um, but you asked about training. And my yeah. training is not structured. So I just go out and ride and sometimes I do intervals. That's yeah. it. Um, yeah. It, it, yeah. And, and, and that's fine. But so um, maybe I'll ask the question a little bit differently. Let, let's say from a time standpoint, from a total time, weekly time spent mm -hmm. training, um, mountain running versus mountain, mountain biking. I, I mean, is it about the same time? Are you generally spending more time on the bike than, or less time on the bike than mm -hmm. you were on two feet? For me, I train significantly more now in terms of time than I did when I was mostly a runner. And I think that's partly because I can, because you can, 
you know, even with mountain biking, which is full body and it does beat you up more than road running, it's still no pounding. So you can, if you train for it, you can go longer and longer and longer. Um, and I think you also have to like, maybe because, you know, like the guys that you want to race against, or if you just want to get really good at it, you know, there's, there's the skill element that like the more that you actually mountain bike, it's not just fitness you're gaining. The more that bike is a part of you, the better you're going to be in your daily riding, the more fun it is, the faster you race, but there's just no pounding. Right. So like, but that being said, I mean, you know, we're studying some guys now, um, who, you know, are putting in 18 to 20 hours a week of, of trail running. So you can work up to it, but that's about my top end for, um, a mix of mountain biking and running is, you know, 18 hours is about you know, the most I can handle. So uh, any cyclist listening to this podcast, mm -hmm. of course, wants me to ask the question and I'll ask it. <clears throat> what, what do you have for bikes? I ride treks mostly because my bike shop, laughing dog bicycles, Amherst, Massachusetts. Um, so they, they sponsor me. So I get a great deal through them. Um, they're a Trek dealer. So I've always bought Treks and my race bike is a Trek pro caliber. So it's a carbon hardtail. Um, and my bike that I ride most often is an aluminum pro caliber that we built up with nice parts, but around a more basic and more sturdy frame because I've, I've broken three Trek pro caliber carbon bikes. So I ride a hardtail <laughs> all the time. Um, so, uh, so hardtail race bike, hardtail training bike, any yeah. other bikes, uh, Trek Farley fat bike, an old one. It's very slow. It's, um, I realized this winter how slow when I hopped on my friend's modern fat bike and he <laughs> hopped on mine and he was like, no wonder you're breathing so hard. And I was like, no wonder you're kicking my ass. So that's my excuse. But yeah, uh, Trek Farley, which for a couple of years I rode all the time. Mm. Um, and then I realized that riding a fat bike all summer kind of made my skills soft. Um, because you can just go anywhere you want and it's fun. But so now it's, now it's mostly a winter bike. Got it. Um, well, <laughs> uh, I too have a, uh, have a, have a Trek, uh, pro caliber, the, uh, uh, the, the carbon <laughs> version of that, uh, great bike. Uh, in fact, I, um, I, I have been meaning to, uh, take the bike off the hook, uh, for the last month or so. And I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I've taken it off the hook in more than a year because I've, I've been, I've been riding my fat bike. Uh, my fat bike now is shifting like a pig, like that, that, that thing needs a hug uh, from my local bike shop. Um, I just, I just haven't, I haven't had the time. So I'll go out and, and ride with the dogs and I'll just, I'll just endure the horrible rear derailleur uh, that I have right now on that, fat, on that fat bike. Um, uh, and so, it's funny that you mentioned the, the pro caliber because I've been, I think about that bike every time I ride my fat bike, which, which shifts horribly right now. Um, so, and again, every, every cyclist, uh, uh, will understand this question. Uh, what, what is your N plus one? Mm. So any non-cyclist, this means we always need another bike. And what would Thank my you. next bike be? Thank you. Uh, well, I need a new fat bike because well, not need, I would like a new fat bike because where I moved. So I moved only 40 minutes. I was in Amherst mass for 10 years. I moved 40 minutes Northwest. And so now I'm at the edge of, of the Berkshires and we've got snowmobile trails through the Berkshire mountains, like in state forest, gorgeous, and they get a ton of use. So I found it's like a fat biking heaven in the winter. So my M plus one right now is another fat bike. Um, but if I ever make a lot of money, 
I also want a full suspension bike just because um, I, it's probably faster even for racing. And I acknowledge that if you get a, a light, fast, full suspension bike, I'm usually the only hardtail in the races that I do. People look at me like I'm nuts. But well, I, I would kind of like one just for gnarly trails around here. That yeah, I, ride. I, I, I mean, I, I think um, <clears throat> I think each discipline of of mountain biking, as we describe, probably has a well. For certain, it has a bike associated with it, and even within uh, within certain disciplines like like cross country, um, sometimes sometimes the course sets up better for a hardtail uh, versus a a full suspension bike. I have a fuel a Trek Fuel EX, my full suspension bike, which which I absolutely love, um, which uh, has a uh, has a, a broken spoke on one of the wheels that I haven't gotten around to bring to my local bike shop. <laughs> I think the majority of my bikes that I have right now are broken uh, just because I haven't had an opportunity to bring them to the bike shop. That's the, uh, that's one of the rubs of course about, about mountain biking. I guess what, I guess what, yeah. what I, what I would mention about bikes and, and uh, uh, is that um, uh, although I, I love to ride my fat bike, of course I enjoy all of the bikes that I have for me. Um, you know, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm really applying myself to mountain biking, um, uh, my, my favorite bike to ride and, and probably, uh, uh, the most beneficial bike for me to ride is my, uh, is my single speed hardtail, my mm. old, uh, my old GT Zaskar, uh, wow. that, uh, yeah, from, 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 from way back, I turned yeah. that into a single speed a number of years ago, just because, why not? Right. I mean, if you, if, if, if you have all the bikes that you want, why, why not have a, why not have a single speed? <laughs> have you ever ridden a single speed and, uh, and, and do you potentially see any application, uh, to, uh, uh, to fitness or just, just fun, uh, on a, on a, on a, on a single speed? I've never ridden one. Well, no, I borrowed a single speed cyclocross bike, a steel single speed cyclocross bike. And without really training on it, jumped in a cyclocross race, um, a couple of years ago on it. And I was overgeared and it was miserable, but I did okay. Um, but the guys that I ride with, so I mostly ride alone, but maybe once a month I do a group ride with them. Um, uh, I would say probably the best riders in Western Mass, other than a handful of guys that, that, that race. These guys are mostly in their 50s and they all ride um, single speed hardtails, mostly steel, steel single speed hardtails. And they can out outride me on anything technical. They're monsters. These guys. Um, I mean, they, I hope they hear this so I can give them a shout out, but these guys are incredible and they're, they're trail builders and they're just like, you know, mountain bike gurus, but they swear by it. And if after all these years of biking and, and they've owned geared bikes and stuff, if this is what they swear by, it's clearly doing something for them. But I love gears. I don't <laughs> like when they break, but I don't want to be limited. I don't know. I mean, I get that it's simpler. There's less things to break. And what they say, and you probably agree, is that it teaches you to carry speed through things because you know you have to. So, yeah, you know, maybe if I had a million dollars and it was N plus five, that might be one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, well, I... I think I think the, the the cool thing about single speeds is that uh, re really <laughs> all, all it takes all it would take would be uh, would be a used bike on the secondary market some you know some late model aluminum frame bike that someone's just trying to get rid of because uh, the actual conversion to a single speed is really it's not I mean it's 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 cheap it's small it's small dollars so if you could and and it and you know it, it doesn't have to be a carbon fiber 
bike, obviously, right? It just needs to be some beater aluminum frame, late model mountain bike that, that, that has been discarded. Uh, that's what I think, that's what I think is, is cool about, uh, it's cool about, about single speed. Um, well, mountain biking doesn't have the obvious impact forces of running, but that doesn't mean that mountain biking isn't without risk. Um, you know, anyone that's gone OTB or over the bars can, can attest to that. Uh, it's, it's just that the injuries tend to be a little bit different in mountain biking than, than in running. Uh, how healthy have you been, uh, the last couple of years with, with mountain biking as a focus? I mean, gosh, knock on wood, nothing that's been more than a week or two setback, but, um, in the last two or three years, five broken ribs and a separated shoulder. So I, I guess not very healthy. Um, and those are all, most of those weren't even high speed, but it's just, I feel like the more time you spend on technical trails, it's bound to happen. I don't even want to say this, but it's been a year and a half, knock on wood, since I've had a crash like that. So all those injuries were mostly within a year and a half time span. Mm. I'm hoping that I'm getting more fluid on the bike such that that's why it's not happening, but it also might just be luck. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Do, uh, do, do you think sometimes that mountain bikers get themselves in trouble uh, in terms of the, the, the positioning and posture of the bike, which may tend to lead to them getting off the bike? Do you think that, that mountain bikers get themselves in trouble when they ride uh, above their ability? That's when I get in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of speed, I mean, half of those injuries. So I've broken five ribs, but I think that was across four different crashes and the separated shoulder. And I think three of those five crashes, I was chasing a Strava segment. Mm -hmm. um, and look, I love Strava and I still do it. I'm more careful with what trails I do intervals on. Um, but like, you know, in a doing an interval on a trail or chasing a Strava segment, you're going to ride faster than you could in a race because it's a hard effort for, you know, five minutes. And so it's a speed that you're never going in a race or in daily training. So sure. you don't know how to handle the bike at that speed. At least I don't. Good point. Um, so my legs have gotten to a point where I can ride faster than my brain can process, you know, the rocks. Yeah. And, uh, and so I hit stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, no, I, I think that's a, that's an excellent observation. You mentioned, you mentioned your local bike shop, uh, laughing dog. Uh, you also have a, a handful of other companies that currently support your racing. You want to give them a shout out too? Yeah. Yeah. So when we moved to Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts, two years ago, um, we discovered this tiny, cute little town has one little brewery and it's, you know, a five minute walk from my house and the owner proprietor, Zach Livingston, um, is a runner. And right away he was like, all right, man, I'll give you some free beer. And, uh, you know, you quote unquote race for floodwater. I don't really know what it means. And, but like we're buddies and I love that business. And, you know, with my very limited audience, um, I want that name to get out there because it's a little hidden gem. So, yeah, Floodwater gives me free beer and a lot of moral support. And they're in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts. So if you're riding Thunder Mountain Bike Park, which a lot of people do, just on your way back down Route 2, we're 12 minutes from Thunder, pull off and drink too much beer at Zach's Floodwater Brewing. And, uh, yeah, and a Loam Coffee um, out of, I think, Portland, Oregon. Um, you know, they are trying to build up kind of like a rider sponsorship program. So I've been, uh, you know, doing a coffee thing with them for a couple of years. And um, so we'll see where that goes, but it's cool. Um, <laughs> coffee, <clears throat> beer, mountain biking. I mean, yeah, those yeah. kind of like, kind of like peanut butter and jelly plus, right. Those yeah. things, those things all go together. Well, this, I, 
I have I have so many more questions about about mountain biking, but I'm gonna make I'm gonna make the shift, uh, pun intended, uh, to your uh, to your uh, your professional realm, uh, and uh, and more specifically your your current research project. Because I was as I was reading your uh, your curriculum vitae and, and 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 looking at some of the things that that you've been involved with professionally from a research standpoint, you you of course have talked about uh, some of these other things on other podcasts. Uh, your sweat research, uh, like, like I think is infinitely fascinating. And I could probably, I could probably spend an hour asking you questions about your, your sweat, uh, research, um, this, uh, um, uh, evolutionarily speaking, uh, how we evolved, uh, how running evolved, uh, I think is another interesting aspect mm -hmm. of, of, of what you, uh, what you've done professionally, but let's focus on, on your current research project. Cause I, it, it actually has a connection. Uh, I have a connection, personal connection to it as well. And I've got some questions for you. Um, tell us what you're doing. Uh, tell us what you're doing, uh, right now in terms of your research. Okay, we are um, measuring energy expenditure in, in runners, uh, mostly ultra marathoners, um, both during their, their life and their training. So we're trying to see how many calories are these people burning day to day and how many calories are they burning during an ultra endurance event. And it's a couple applications of that. I mean, one is simply that we don't have a lot of these data. So it's nice just to get more data on what these kind of events actually cost, you know, uh, 10,000 calories a day, nine to 10,000 calories a day is, uh, I mean, obviously it's different for everyone because of body mass mostly, but that's about what it takes to run hundred miles, you know, in a day, something like that. Um, and, but really what we're trying to get at is by building up this, this little data set, um, we want to ask some deeper questions about what are the limits of human energy expenditure, um, which I could drone on and on about, but I'll let you ask follow-up questions before I do that. Okay. All right. Fair, fair. And I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to you nerding out here for just, for just a few minutes. So, um, so, but, 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 but before I ask those questions, let me, let me, let me, or let me set up my questions by, uh, by sharing this with the, with the listeners. When I asked you about your current research project, this is how you described it. And I'm, I'm going to read it to you because I've got questions about how that presented to me. Um, you, so you said your current research project, um, it sort of focuses, as, as you mentioned, on the limits of human energy expenditure. You said basically uh, data suggests uh, that, the, that, that the limit of sustained long-term energy expenditure is about two and a half times basal metabolic rate. Uh, and then you gave me the example so that to, to illustrate that, you said if your basal metabolic rate is 1,500 calories a day, then the highest total daily energy expenditure you could maintain without losing weight is 3,750 calories or two and a half times um, um, uh, basal metabolic rate. Uh, you also said that you suspect that that limit is a, is a little bit higher. My, my first question to you, Drew, is how do you, how do you define sustained uh, and long-term in this context? What, is that, what does that mean? That would mean uh, without losing weight. So something that if you have unlimited food and you're able to keep getting enough rest and you know, you don't get sick, you don't get injured. This is an energy output that you could sustain, uh, you know, indefinitely because you're not, you're not burning body tissue doing it. Right. Um, okay. Um, so, all right. So sustained and long-term in this case suggests indefinite. Yeah. 
to be able to maintain that that energy balance. Uh, for the listener who's not familiar with basal metabolic rate, can you can you describe that in in layman's terms? Yeah. So all the energy, which you can measure in calories or kilojoules, I like calories, that it takes to run your body in 24 hours if you do nothing but lay in bed, right? So even if you're on bed rest, you still got to eat. Why? Because all your cells are still doing all kinds of chemistry and that takes energy. So your organs require energy, you know, your brain, breathing, um, your immune function, you know, when you're sick, your BMR goes up a bit because you're making more immune cells. So that's your basal metabolic rate. So basal metabolic rate uh, can be can be estimated uh, uh, using uh, some 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 common uh, regression equations. Uh, but basal metabolic rate, I suspect, in this context, uh, is measured in in the laboratory, um, right? Um, can you? It should be. Can you... <laughs> okay. Well, well, well. Talk a little bit about how you determine basal metabolic rate for these test subjects. Yeah, that's that's funny. We have a pa- our first paper is in review right now, and I'm I'm working on edits. They like it, but one of their big questions was, "You guys didn't measure BMR. You estimated it." That's true. So. Um, I do have the capacity in my lab using um, using indirect calorimetry to actually measure BMR, and that's someone lays up. So how is it measured? Uh, you bring someone in when they first woke up. You ask them to not eat anything, not drink any coffee, and they lay on a table, get nice and calm, and you put a mask over their face, and you measure how much carbon dioxide they're making and how much oxygen they're using as they lay there for you know 20 minutes. And then you just do the multiplication, and you extrapolate that out to 24 hours, and that's their BMR. That's a good way to do it. You know, even better would be have someone live in a metabolic chamber for 24 hours, not move and just measure how much energy they're using. <laughs> so these are all estimates, right? Because like, it's going to differ a little bit day by day. Um, so I can measure that and I do measure it in some people and I going forward, I want to measure it in as many of our subjects as we can. But in, in recruiting these athletes, most of them are not local. So we're not able to get most of them in the lab to actually measure this. So we're using what we think is the best available predictive equation, um, which was uh, developed in 2021 by my partner, um, Herman Ponser of Duke University. He's like the senior scientist on this. He's the one that has the lab that can do the sample analysis and and all that stuff. Um, So using 2000 individuals that have their BMR actually measured directly using indirect calorimetry, they developed a regression equation, um, which has been done before, right? But this one's pretty good because it also includes a measure of uh, fat-free mass, which is the biggest predictor of BMR, right? So if you and I weigh the same and have the same body fat levels, uh, we probably have a very similar BMR. So most of the variation in BMR between people is due to how big you are subtracting fat mass because fat is not very metabolically active. There's a little more variation than that. And so it's better to directly measure someone's BMR. But if you can't, if you have an equation that is pretty robust and that takes into account body fat percentage or fat-free mass, um, then you can be fairly confident that it's close, especially the bigger that your sample size gets. um, You can be more confident that on average, you are getting it right. But so that's what we've done. And, and doesn't age and gender uh, have some influence on Bayes' metabolic rate as well? Not as much as, as you think. Um, so BMR, actually total energy expenditure, so the total calories that you burn in the day, probably BMR as well, 
um, don't really seem to reduce that much until after age, I want to say 60. This is some recent research that actually came from this guy, Herman Ponser, that I'm working with, um, looking at a really big data set. So there's this you know, common conception that, you know, oh, we're gaining weight when we turn 40 because our metabolism slows down. We all like to use that excuse. Uh, that's true for some people at the individual level, but panning out, looking at, you know, huge groups of people on average, that's not true. So weight gain is not due to your, to your metabolism slowing down until about age 60. Before that, so on average, we Americans gain a pound a year of fat. That's just because we overeat. We overeat very slightly. And you gain a pound a year because of that. It's not because your metabolism slowing down. So we so we can't blame that. Um, differences between sexes, I think, are mostly due to differences in fat-free mass. Um, I'm not sure how much other variation there is, but generally, women tend to be to have less fat-free mass, um, and that's the tissue that that costs energy. So mm -hmm. that's that's the biggest thing. Well, I, I I'd be really interested in uh, in seeing that uh, that regression equation. Um, I, I I actually I, I, I use a, a website that actually uh, includes I think six different regression equations. Uh, so I, I I'll enter in uh, my athlete's age and gender, uh, current body mass, percent body fat if I have it, uh, and their and their height. Uh, and, and based on and based on those numbers, those numbers are put into those those six different regression equations. And I get I basically get an average BMR from these six established regression equations. I feel like that's probably the most accurate way to do it. But I would be really um, I, I would be really uh, interested and curious to get my hands on that regression equation as well, because I'd, I'd be interested to see um, how different the estimated BMR is. Uh, based on that equation by Ponzer versus what I've what I've been using, yep. it's probably similar, Drew, and it it, it probably isn't isn't going to change uh, my approach significantly because I I suspect that it probably varies by less than a few hundred calories, yep. um, right? It, it's yep. it's it's probably not not a thousand calorie uh, difference. It's probably a, a, a matter of a few hundred calories, but clearly. Uh, in the research that you, you're doing, you know, to, to, to get that estimate as close to what it actually is, is, is really important. Uh, you also talked about a high volume uh, when you when you talked about these endurance athletes. Uh, how would you characterize high volume from an endurance athlete standpoint? In other words, these test subjects, what does high volume mean? That's a great question, because when we started this project about a year and a half ago, two years ago, it started. OK, I'll answer your question first and then I'll tell you why I don't have a good answer to it. Um, the highest volume athletes I can find who are doing endurance running and maybe some, some biking and swimming. Right. So basically the highest volume athletes I could get when I did a call out for it. Um, so we're getting people who are averaging over the course of a year, uh, anywhere from 15 to 30 hours a week of, of endurance training. Um, and so that's, that's not very homogenous, right? This is a group that there's a lot of variation in how much they, they train. And we're okay with that because we just want to, it's, you'd be surprised. Most people would be surprised that we don't really have an answer yet to the question of how much energy can someone burn, right? So we're kind of, we know that we're looking at unicorns here, right? So we're recruiting people who um, train at a very high volume and we're not intentionally looking for elite athletes, but most of them are elite or at least sub elite because generally if you're training that much, you're probably going to be pretty damn good at it. So that's the range we have. Um, 
our first round of data from last summer, uh, we actually found those volunteers weren't training as much as I, as I expected they would be. These are all ultra runners. Um, one of them did run 4,300 miles in 2021. Um, but the others, you know, maybe like 3000, which is, which is a lot, but it's not, it's not crazy. And so their energy expenditures for the most part, weren't quite as high as we think the limits probably are. So we said, look, this is really expensive. It costs $500 per dose. And we're dosing everyone multiple times with this thing called doubly labeled water, which lets you measure energy expenditure. So we need to, you know, this, this is, this is an expensive project. We need to be recruiting people who are helping us to better test this idea. So we, we're going to stick with, with, you know, ultra um, endurance athletes. So we have a sample size that it, at least is doing the same sport. Um, but we're going to try to get people who do more because we want to see if we can find even a handful of people who are, you know, breaking what we think the limit is, then that alone is going to tell us something. Yeah. So, so, so training volume for me, for me, training, I think you're describing training volume as, as, as actual total training time. That's what you said, 15 to 30 hours per week. But, but for me as an exercise physiologist, when I hear training volume, I think of, uh, I, I think of, I think of the product of activity duration and activity intensity that, that, right. that that's volume. And, uh, in, in training peaks parlance, that's described as training stress. Um, uh, clearly, you can describe training, uh, training amount uh, in terms of just uh, duration. Um, but, 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 but there is a difference, I think, bioenergetically um, um, in, 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 training, in training volume with regard to how you get there, right? So in other words, uh, if you're doing the majority of your training in, in, in low zones, right? Zone one, zone two, the, the, the lower heart rate or the lower effort zones uh, versus, a, versus a mix uh, of training with some easy efforts and some hard efforts. Um, I mean, if you still, at the end of the day, two athletes still arrive at the same place from a training volume standpoint, However you, however you want to quantify training volume, you can quantify it in terms of, in terms of met minutes, for instance, if you wanted to quantify it that way. That'd be way better. Right. <laughs> however, you got, however you get to that training volume number, how you get there, I think, bioenergetically, uh, potentially is different. Don't, don't you think so? With, with regard to if the majority of the effort is spent uh, in low training zones versus, versus, the, versus a, a mixture, because we're tapping into different energy sources, uh, different, different fuel mixtures, uh, when we're talking about, you know, really, really low effort aerobic stuff versus a combination of, of aerobic stuff and anaerobic stuff. What, what influence do you suppose, uh, exercise intensity has on bioenergetics in this case? Good question. So, yeah, so because what, so the, the variable of interest here is total energy expenditure. And so that's the total calories as people are burning both for their BMR, so just, you know, to stay alive and in their training and then in anything else they do, walking around, gardening, whatever, you know. Um, so that, that number is going to capture, you know, everything they're doing. And so differences between people in, you know, intensity and stuff, it's going to capture that anyway. So that stuff washes out. But what I think maybe you're saying is, um, and I think you're right if this is what you're saying, that if we're just looking at training volume in terms of hours or miles, and we're then trying to compare that to energy expenditure, we are missing some important detail there. Um, and that's probably true. 
Um, but so a couple ways around that. So, and they're, and they're not perfect. This is why we need a big sample size, right? So that we can really see what's happening here when we pan out. Um, I think that uh, I kind of lost my train of thought there. What was I going to say? Yeah. Uh, well, okay. No, a couple things. First of all, because these are all ultra athletes, most of what they're doing is going to be zone zone two and lower. So there's that. Um, spending more time in higher zones isn't really going to increase your energy expenditure uh, per unit distance, right? So like it costs about the same to run a four minute mile as it does a 10 minute mile, but it's definitely going to change your energy expenditure per unit time. So what that means is that I can't simply look at, you know, um, training time uh, and then say, okay, um, you know, here's their total energy expenditure as it relates to time. I can include distance and that's going to get us a bit closer. Good point. But then we also have differences in, you know, vertical ascent, which actually doesn't make as big a difference on energy expenditure as you think, because what goes up must come down and you recoup most, but not all of that extra energy on the downhill that you spent on the uphill most, but not all. Um, so I, this is a long answer to a good question. Um, we're not really able to fine grain quantify training load. Mm, yeah. Right. Yeah. Good, good point. I, li I like, the use of the, yeah, I like the use of the, the term load there. <clears throat> well, this subject is, is interesting to me because uh, I don't know for the last three or four years um, I have averaged personally averaged somewhere between 15 and 18 hours of activity a week. Uh, I'm not an elite athlete. I'm not anywhere close to being an elite athlete. I'm also not a, a, a single activity uh, uh, athlete. Uh, that that includes uh, strength training and and running and cycling and Nordic and snowshoe and kayaking and uh, and and you name it. That that's included in that 16 to, to, to 18 hours a week that I've been able to sustain for many years. I'm going to talk. I want to. I'll talk a little bit more about my ability to maintain my body mass through that time because this gets to I think mm -hmm. the research that, that, that you're doing, um, uh, with respect to, 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 body mass, let me, let me ask a follow-up question there too. So uh, how would these athletes be described, uh, in, in regard to body mass and body composition? What do they, what, what do they look like, uh, from that standpoint? So from, so the, uh, volunteers we have already analyzed and the people we're currently in progress with this summer, we'll have about 14 athletes. And I would say actually body mass, uh, varies widely, mostly because these are ultra athletes. And I think anecdotally, there's more variation in the body type of an ultra athlete than there is in like a roadrunner. Um, but you know, we've got some people that are in the upper fifties, you know, kilogram body mass. And I think our biggest person right now is maybe 91 kilograms, which is big for an endurance athlete. Um, body fat, we measure indirectly from the urine samples we get. So, uh, I actually don't know all the science behind it, but from the isotope dilution, it's part of the doubly labeled water method. We can estimate body mass or body, body fat. And yeah. so um, we can pull that out and then we use that then as part of the BMR estimation. Yeah, so body fat, from what we've seen so far um, measured that way. Oh, 10 to, we only have one female so far. And so I won't list her body fat just because she might be identifiable, but Understood. for the men we've got so far, I don't know, 10 to 15% body fat. Okay. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Um, what, what role, what role do you think training age plays? And is, is, is that, is that a, is that a variable or metric that you are, uh, is that a data point that you're collecting training age? Meaning how long people have been training? Yes. Um, 
it is something we're collecting. I mean, we're just asking them how long you've been running, how long you've been running ultras. Um, and we're not including it in any of the statistical models yet. Basically, this project, and from, from talking about it with you, it's becoming apparent you know, to me, this, this still actually feels almost like a pilot study and that we're just sort of reaching out and grabbing these, these data that for some reason people haven't gotten very much of because they're, I guess, because they're hard to get. And then with that, we're going to be able to ask deeper questions. And I think that's one of them. So what I'm excited about is a year or two from now, whenever I find time, because I have a big teaching load, I work at a place where they don't give you much time for research and that's okay. That's the job. Um, I want to dig further into whatever is causing the variation here, right? So already, and I am going to circle back to your question, if I don't forget. So already what we're seeing is that there is variation between people in how much work they can do at a given energy expenditure, right? So like, you know, we've got one guy who's living his life at around, you know, 2.3 times basal metabolic rate. Um, and he's, you know, doing a ton of running um, and comparatively it's costing him not that much. And, you know, there's another guy in our study who's, you know, running, averaging maybe 60 miles a week year round. That's not crazy for a runner. And he's at like 2.5 times basal metabolic rate. So he's living his life at a higher energy burn, even though he's doing less work, less, less running than the other guy. So there's a lot of variation here. Um, and once we get a big enough data set, I want to dig into what some of that variation is. You know, could it be that the more years you've been training, um, you have a shift in your metabolism, right? So there's some evidence that your body compensates for energy that you're spending on exercise by pulling it back from somewhere else. It might be from your BMR. It might be as simple as, you know, you lay on the couch all day. So you're not doing any other physical activity, but somewhere you're compensating. So maybe it's people who've been training for, for years and years are compensating with a reduced BMR, right? So training age could be a factor there. Um, so you're, you mentioned, you mentioned that you have one female in the study. Um, what, what, what value, what value do you suspect there is with a, with an N plus one in this type, in this type of research? Why not, why not, why not just focus, why not just focus on, on men in, in this case, mm -hmm. or just focus on women? Why, why have an N, why have an N plus one with regard to gender? I think because we are hoping to add, so now we're at N plus two as of this summer, right? But we're thinking of writing a much bigger grant. So depending on what these results tell us and, you know, um, how well this is all going, we might continue this by asking for a ton of money, in which case it'd be nice to show that we've actually made an attempt at getting female data and that, you know, we could add to that. But as far as drawing conclusions from an N equals two, there won't be any conclusions from this. No. Yep. That's fair. Um, age range what's the what, what's the what's the age range or, or what's the what's the average age of your study participant currently oh early 20s to uh actually our oldest participant now is 51 hmm. i believe yeah um, what, and um, it's actually kind of intentional we, we actually want a range we're we're sort of trying to not control for too many things here yeah uh we're kind of interested in what the variation could be and even though we're not going to be able to drill down into what's causing it here it'll be nice to have sort of a more varied data set to start with. Yeah. And what, just out of curiosity, obviously that you don't, you don't have the data to support any conclusion at this point, but what, what role do you think age will, will end up playing uh, ultimately? Mm. That's a great question. I mean, on the one hand, people who have been doing this for decades have 
the physical resilience to sustain a high volume, right? I mean, some of the highest volume athletes I know are over 40. So anecdotally, it could be that, you know, they've metabolically compensated. They, you know, their soft tissue is, you know, like prepared for this, for this training load. Um, I don't know. I don't think I want to conjecture beyond that. It's a good question though. It's fair. Uh, yeah. So as, so as potentially not to bias your, uh, your, your approach, right. Your intellectual approach in terms of what questions you may or may not ask yourself going forward. Um, so what, 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 what do you think the implications or, or applications of this research will eventually be? Yeah. So our, our main interest, and it's, it's a little bit obscured, you know, by the fact that we're working with, with runners and our first paper that's hopefully coming out this summer on it is totally about, just reporting energy expenditure, you know, during this race, during uh, the Cocodona 250 um, uh, and the Arizona trail record that one of our guys set two years ago. Um, but really what we want from this is we want to test some bigger evolutionary ideas and the physiological ideas, which is that something, so regardless of what the task is, whether it's, um, you know, you're living in a cold environment and so you have to generate heat constantly to stay warm, you know, they have data on reindeer herders who are doing manual labor, whether it's really intensive farming, endurance athletes, or even pregnancy, actually. If you plot the duration of the endurance event versus um, the energy output that you can sustain for that, actually, pregnancy falls right on that curve. So these new ideas, sorry for the tangent, but the reason why fetuses, um, you know, are delivered at roughly nine months probably isn't so much that they get too big directly. It's that they start to cost too much energy and the mother is at her metabolic ceiling and she can no longer you know, support that. So that's actually probably the trigger for um, childbirth. Anyway, um, so regardless of what the task is you're doing, there seems to be a common limit. And right now it appears to be around two and a half times basal metabolic rate. So that would imply that this is not a muscular limit. This is not an oxygen delivery limit. Um, this is not a metabolic limit in terms of your mitochondria, anything like that. It has more to do with energy throughput in the body. So it probably has to do with your ability either to digest nutrients in your intestines and absorb them, right? Or to, and or to assimilate those into say glycogen storage in your liver and muscles or into fat, um, so the limit probably is a digestive and nutrient assimilation limit. So we've apparently evolved, probably all animals have, this, this limit to how much energy we can spend. But for humans, it appears, we think, it's actually digestive. So if we can get data on people who are doing more physical work than probably anybody else, and we think that high-volume endurance athletes are a great population there, we don't care that they're runners. We care that they're spending a ton of calories in a way that is, by the way, unnatural, right? We're not suggesting that any early humans could do this. We're looking at high volume endurance athletes because they have optimized nutrition, all the food they could ever want to eat. Um, you know, hopefully, you know, they're getting massages, they're sleeping. For most of them, it's their job. So we're looking at the unicorns, the people who are going to help us prove sort of, it's almost like we're controlling the other variables a bit. It's like a natural experiment. How much energy can a person burn if their only job in life is to burn energy? And that's what these people are, right? They're unicorns. They're energy burning unicorns. Um, so 
long answer to your short question, we're hoping that this tells us something about what the limit to human energy expenditure is. And from that, we could infer uh, where the limitation is. And right now we think it's probably in your digestion. Um, future applications of that, you know, like I said, I wanna dig deeper into what's causing the variation. I suspect that actually what makes a great high volume endurance athlete might actually be your guts, right? It might be people who can extract more energy from their food, you know, poop less of it out, store more of it as glycogen. So, you know, the, uh, Anne Trayson has said an ultra marathon is an eating, you know, competition. I think that might be true. And these data could, you know, kind of help to confirm that. Um, but in terms of real world applications, because everything I'm describing is all theoretical, like academic, and that's the stuff I care about. I just like, I get off on learning about, you know, our evolved biology. That's all I care about. But potentially, depending on what we find, you know, this could be applicable to training load. You know, maybe uh, if everyone can identify through, you know, you can pay to have your total energy expenditure measured. You can send out to a lab your urine samples. Uh, you can do the thing we're doing. Um, and then if you had a good way of tracking, you know, how many calories you're actually spending in your training, and that's a whole other, you know, can of worms, then you could stay, you know, below what your threshold is. So potentially for the people who really like to biohack, which is a term I hate and kind of a concept I hate because I feel like it's a shortcut, but potentially this could become one of those shortcuts where, you know, people are monitoring their glucose in real time, which I think is ridiculous, but you could be measuring your energy expenditure by sending your samples out to a lab and keeping yourself right below that threshold beyond which would definitely be overtraining syndrome, right? And red S. Do you, do you think, do you think the natural leap from understanding what the limitation is to being able to exploit that limitation uh, or, or somehow influence that limitation potentially unlocks an entirely new level of ultra distance performance for some athletes? I, I mean, I want to say no, but I'm keeping it. I'm trying to keep in mind that like we've loosely talked about maybe at some point trying to monetize this, even though I'm, that's kind of not my thing, but I'm just going to say, no, I don't think it's going to be huge. I am prepared to eat my words, but that's what everyone wants to ask me about. They're like, is this going to improve performance? I'm like, you know what? I don't know. I'm a little bit old school and that I feel like most of what makes us good at endurance. We already know what it is. We know the 99%. And if you're training your ass off and eating enough calories, that's 99%. And what people argue about are the 1% shortcuts, like take your friggin' beet juice, you know, I'm like it's bullshit. Put in more work. You're going to get way more out of an extra hour of training than you are drinking some fucking beet juice. Sorry, I'm swearing. It pisses me off. Anyway. Um, and I don't, I don't mean to be aggressive in my answer to this question, but uh, I, no, I don't, I don't think it's going to be a game changer at all. Um, because I, I think athletes at the highest level who are the ones who could potentially benefit from this, who are training that much, have already intuited what their limits are. And that's part of what makes them good. They figured it out with their coach on their own. They know what they can handle. They've done the trial and error. This could potentially take a little bit of the trial and error out of it. Um, but I think it's going to be added to the list of things that, you know, will be slightly helpful for some people, but that I could, you know, see being oversold mm. and I will try to never oversell it myself. I mean, it, it, everything that you're describing uh, reminds me of a, of a recent podcast episode I did with a friend of mine, Cole Crosby, uh, mm. who very recently uh, set the uh, OG uh, record uh, at the speed project. 
Uh, I'm sure you've probably heard of it. I haven't. I do know coal, but I have not heard of that project. Okay. Well, well. The, so the Speed Project is this um, is this uh, unsanctioned, um, uh, not not overly organized. Um, started as a relay race from Santa Monica to Las Vegas. Oh, and, I saw him do this on on Strava. I saw this. Yeah, of course you did. So so he and I so he and I talked about it, right? So, and he set he set the uh, he set the the record. Uh, the time record for the OG, right. For the, for the original course, 350 something miles, 92 hours took him a little under three days or a little over three days. Um, and, and it was a fascinating conversation about, uh, about his experience, but as you, but, but as you're describing what you do, it would seem to me that coal, uh, would be, would, would, would be an excellent test subject uh, for for this research as he, he certainly has the cred um, you know overall the the, the endurance uh, athlete credibility but also uh, having just recently uh, you know experienced this you know th- this 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 amazing ultra distance performance it's mind-blowing uh, right that he averaged uh, over a hundred miles a day for for three days right I mean yeah. uh, now I don't I don't know if he weighed himself uh, pre and post if that was part of what he did but uh, but I I'd, I'd be I'd be curious about that what it what type of test subject do you think Cole Crosby would be for the type of research that you're doing I can neither confirm nor deny that I know what type of test subject Cole Crosby would be okay fair that's fair. That's fair. I, 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 your, your, your non-answer answer is, uh, that was, that was outstanding. Okay. Well, great, great minds, obviously, uh, think, think alike. Um, uh, again, I, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating conversation. I mean, I, I for me, uh, I mean, I, I, I've always, I've attributed the last couple of years, um, my ability to largely maintain my body mass, um, you know, with plus or minus five pounds over the last over the last three or four years, uh, I've largely it, because my activity pattern has been very stable from a, mm. from an overall training volume standpoint. Uh, I've largely attributed it to, uh, to 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 what I'm doing nutritionally uh, and my ability to, to maintain to to be relatively consistent from a nutritional standpoint. Um, I, I guess uh, two more questions question about uh, about the the role and impact uh, of nutrition in this equation with respect to an athlete's ability to maintain body mass with these really high uh, energy outputs I think I want to first ask you what is your nutrition plan like how are you because you're, you're doing a pretty high training volume first of all do you have any idea how much you're you're eating and what kind of stuff are you eating and then mm-hmm. I'll answer your question yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so at the present, uh, I, 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 I don't know uh, specifically what my my caloric intake is, uh, but I can tell you from uh, from the roughly the year that I was tracking consistently food logging, um, I was I was generally um, running somewhere between a, a two hundred and fifty uh, and five hundred calorie uh, daily caloric deficit. So that was my estimated BMR, my estimated basal metabolic rate plus my activity calories. That was my, that was my energy budget or my calorie budget for the day. And then my objective always was to, again, be somewhere on the order of, 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 of 250 to a 500 calorie daily caloric deficit. Now there, there were obviously days in which I was, I was closer to, to zero or, or, or what I would call an energy balance or neutral uh, energy intake. 
very rarely was I was I ever over. And so so during that what what I what I should clarify is that during that period of time, I, I was I was losing weight. Uh, I lost a significant amount of weight, 30 pounds or so. Um, and and I, I stopped food logging at that point because I, I, I first of all, with, with a year of food logging, I had a, a really a, a, a very deep understanding of what I needed to eat. And I'll, I'll talk about that more specifically in just a moment. So um, my ability now uh, to, I think, to maintain body mass is probably likely due to the fact that I'm, I'm probably at a, at a neutral energy balance. Um, right. So my, my I mean, calories in calories out is I think a little bit too simplistic uh, of, of a way to describe this. But if, if I was to describe it that way, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm probably uh, consuming uh, approximately the same amount of calories that I am expending. Uh, from and again, my energy, my energy budget every day would be my estimated basal metabolic rate plus my activity calories. Um, the 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 types of things I'm eating, uh, 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 rather than getting into the specific details of of, of what I eat, I, I can talk about it from a, a macronutrient standpoint. So I think I think the macronutrients are probably more important than the actual food choices. Um, for me, um, it, when when I'm when I'm dialed in nutritionally and I'm uh, and I'm doing a really good job of maintaining body mass with that high training volume, I'm somewhere on the order of, of 40, 20 or 40, 30, 30, 40% of my calories are from protein, 30% are oh, from wow. carbohydrate and 30% are from fat. Yeah. Right. So the Barry Sears, uh, the, the Barry Sears, uh, um, uh, approach to, uh, to optimizing body mass. I, I think, I personally think that carbohydrates are a little bit overrated from an endurance athlete standpoint. Um, I, I mean, I think generally speaking, uh, as, 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 as American adults, we tend to consume far too many, uh, ca uh carbohydrate calories. I think that's probably part of the reason why obesity is, is an ep epidemic, uh, in, in this country. So my, my focus has been, uh, been, been more on protein as a macronutrient again, when I'm really, when I'm really dialed in, but, 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 but truth be told, probably the most significant and important uh, nu nutritional change that I, that I, that I made and, ha and have sustained is largely an abstinence from alcohol. That, that, that was the most significant uh, nutritional choice uh, that I made uh, a, a year and a half or so ago. Uh, I mean, I do occasionally have a glass of wine or, or a beer, but it's, I mean, literally it's maybe one or two drinks uh, a quarter or or wow. maybe less than less than a handful of drinks in the entire year so and that was a big change from where i was at before uh, and largely what was probably contributing to my caloric surplus which was largely contributing to my weight uh, creeping up over the years right. right oh man well i should preface any of this by saying i'm not a nutritionist um and any nutrition stuff that i know it's mostly just from you know the reading from the understanding I need for what I do. So any nutritionists out there can yell at me. That's fine. Uh, yeah. I mean, sounds like you found a weight loss program and then a, you know, body mass maintenance program and you're definitely in energy balance now and awesome that you cut out alcohol. Uh, alcohol is just bad. I love it. And I drink too much beer and I track every beer I drink because I want to drink less. And I've been doing that for two years with not a whole lot of improvement, but Hey, someday, <laughs> um, I don't know. Okay. So the question you were asking before I asked you a question, you were like, what role do you think nutrition plays in 
what like limits of human energy expenditure. Yeah, yeah, and 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 more specifically, the the ability to maintain body mass. Because I think, I mean, I think mm. that's an important component right. uh, to to your to your research. Whether you are uh, whether you're or specifically uh, tracking uh, nutrition or calorie intake or not. Uh, you know, if we're if we're if we're losing weight or we're maintaining weight or we're gaining weight, clearly it's related to to energy output. But there's also a nutritional component to it as well, because we're you know, right. we are we may not be replacing calories, but we are replenishing calories because it's frankly, it's difficult to replace calories. And, and, and that's actually never a good approach from an ultra distance standpoint to, to, to attempt to replace the five to 10,000 calories that we're burning uh, through ultra distance competition. You simply can't eat that much without having significant gastric distress. So it's about replenishment, not replacement. But what, but, but, but what role just generally do you think nutrition plays in the ability to maintain body mass uh, uh, in the context of, of high energy outputs? Right. I am glad that you put in the context of high energy outputs. I think any nutritional and, and dietary advice is going to be vastly different between a sedentary person or even a moderately active person and the people we're talking about. And that includes you and me. I think, I think you and I could probably do pretty well um, eating a variety of different diets as long as there were enough calories in it and enough actual nutrients. Totally. As long as, as, long as it's not all donuts, I think, I think we're okay. To I, I completely agree right. with that. Yes. That yeah. said, when you, when you find one that works, stick to it. Agree. Right. That, that seems to be a thing too, but um, it's okay. So for people at a really high, high energetic output, I mean, at least anecdotally from looking at data, there are people who, you know, run really well ultra marathons off of a vegan diet off of what seems ridiculous to me, but a high meat diet. And as an anthropologist, I would say that's all evidence that humans have evolved to be really flexible in terms of diet. I mean, the Inuit are by and large pretty healthy people and they live on whale blubber and there's parts of the world that never touch meat. And, you know, as long as there's not like a heavy disease burden, because it's a developing country, other than that, they're, they're pretty healthy, right? So and if we look at these people doing these really high energetic outputs, you can do that off of a variety of diets as long as there's enough calories. Um, so for me, and I'm not a nutritionist, my sense is that we're spending a bit too much time, energy, and focus debating, even, even for high volume athletes, different ratios of macronutrients. And the main point is just that some of us probably aren't eating enough. And that is the opposite problem from what most people have. Um, but just anecdotally, I've noticed I feel better when I eat a ton. And it almost doesn't matter what it is. Because if you're eating a ton, you're probably getting what you need. There might be a bit extra. I mean, I don't know where it is, but I'm sure I've got a pound of fat on me I could lose. But I don't know if it's worth it. You know, because like every time I've tried to do that or watch what I eat, I then have a week of bonking. Um, so to answer your question, I, and in the next 50 years, we'll know more, right? People now say they know more. They don't. <laughs> I think in the next 50 years, we'll have a better understanding of actually what the finer grain details of diet do. But I think the overall message is just as long as you're not eating total shit um, and you're eating enough calories, I think that's 99% of the battle. Mm. Um, I, I, I guess I'll, 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 I'll end with this, that I think you're and, and this is uh, th this this thought should be uh, an intriguing concept for the listener going forward, because um, because and it, it, it's 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 not a concept that is unique to me. I didn't come up with it, but um, this idea that uh, that the gut 
is really the key to human performance, I think is an interesting concept. Mm. You've sort of alluded to it a little bit. Um, and, 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 and I guess I'll expand it beyond uh, human performance, uh, that the gut very well may be the key to human health as, as well. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think it's an infin infinitely fascinating uh, conversation. In fact, I, uh, I have a, a, a friend of mine uh, who's, who's a nurse practitioner who, uh, who, who studies gut health extensively. And uh, I'm hoping to get her on the show soon because I'd like to, I'd like to learn more about that myself. It's interesting that you're, you're, you mentioned uh, the gut and digestion as part of, of potentially, uh, uh, you know, a, a, an area that, uh, uh, or, a, or a system that's involved in, in what you're studying. I find that, I find that fascinating. Uh, I, I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you comment on, on, on the, the key and importance of gut health in, in these, in these, uh, these areas. I think that's probably true. And so maybe mm -hmm. what I just said about, you know, nutrition, not being as important as some people think, as long as you're eating enough, maybe that's not true to the extent that if what you're eating is disrupting your gut, um, then it's probably problematic, right? So if you're at a super high energetic output, you need to be extracting all the calories you can out of your food. Um, and if whatever you're eating is not allowing you to do that, if it's passing through you too quickly, then, you know, that would be a performance limiter. Mm. Um, and I'm no expert on the gut, but I mean, all these new areas of research coming out are that the gut is involved in way more of your physiology than you think, right? Yeah. Even like making serotonin, blah, blah. So yeah, cool. I'll look forward to hearing that one. <laughs> um, so, Drew, how do, how do folks follow along on your, uh, athletic and academic journeys? Well, my Instagram, I mostly share uh, bike content and some science content. It's meant to be public, and it usually is public, at least during the race season. So I'm Shreddy Professor. Uh, I don't think it's the Shreddy Professor. I think it's Shreddy Professor. Anyway, or Drew Best on Instagram. Um, and you see Twitter I use for science, but I don't use it that much, but that's Running Primate. Um, I have a website, therunningprimate.com, and that's kind of meant more to be an academic uh, thing so that if other researchers want to see what I'm doing, there's generally updated. That's about it. Drew, I appreciate that. Um, look, this is, it's been a fascinating conversation. It is exactly what I, what I, uh, what I expected to be, what I expected it to be. Unpredictable. Uh, and, yeah. And I, <laughs> I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. It's nice to catch up with you, Chris, since I haven't been doing mountain races. I haven't seen you in a while. So thank you. The intersection of sports and science have always been fascinating to me. It's such a great opportunity to talk shop with someone else uh, who shares an interest in those fields as well. Once again, you've been listening to the Eat Half Walk Double podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please circle back to the homepage and click the follow or subscribe button to stay up to date with all the new content. And of course, if you really enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn and the show's Facebook page at Eat Half Walk Double. So make sure to check it out. And lastly, remember the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.